she asked. At seven. I was in New York then, in a cab going to Grand Central. Where did you have breakfast? In a lunch wagon. The kind that stays open all night? Yes, mostly for truck drivers. Do you go there often? Whenever I want a cup of coffee. And you sit at a counter. And there are people around looking at you? I sit at a counter when I have the time. There are people around. I don't think they look at me much. And afterward? You walk to work? Yes. You walk every day? Down any of these streets? Past any window? So that if one just wanted to reach and open the window... People don't stare out of windows here. From the vantage of the high stoop, they could see the excavation across the street, the earth, the workmen, the rising steel columns in a glare of harsh light. She thought it was strange to see fresh earth in the midst of pavements and cobblestones, as if a piece had been torn from the clothing of a town, showing naked flesh. She said, You've done two country homes in the last two years. Yes, one in Pennsylvania and one near Boston. They were unimportant houses. Inexpensive, if that's what you mean, but very interesting to do. How long will you remain here? Another month. Why do you work at night? It's a rush job. Across the street the derrick was moving, balancing a long girder in the air. She saw him watching it, and she knew he was not thinking of it. But there was the instinctive response in his eyes, something physically personal, intimacy with any action taken for his building. Rourke. They had not pronounced each other's names. It had the sensuous pleasure of a surrender long delayed, to pronounce the name and to have him hear it. Rourke. It's the quarry again. He smiled. If you wish. Only it isn't. After the Enright House? After the Cord Building? I don't think of it that way. How do you think of it? I love doing it. Every building is like a person, single and unrepeatable. He was looking across the street. He had not changed. There was the old sense of lightness in him, of ease in motion, in action, in thought. She said her sentence without beginning or end. Doing five-story buildings for the rest of your life. If necessary. But I don't think it will be like that. What are you waiting for? I'm not waiting. She closed her eyes, but she could not hide her mouth. Her mouth held bitterness, anger, and pain. Rourke, if you'd been in the city, I wouldn't have come to see you. I know it. But it was you in another place, in some nameless hole of a place like this. I had to see it. I had to see the place. When are you going back? You know I haven't come to remain? Yes. Why? You're still afraid of lunch wagons and windows. I'm not going back to New York, not at once. No. You haven't asked me anything, Rourke, only whether I walked from the station. What do you want me to ask you? I got off the train when I saw the name of the station, she said, her voice dull. I didn't intend coming here. I was on my way to Reno. And after that, I will marry again. Do I know your fiancé? You've heard of him. His name is Gail Winant.
she saw his eyes. She thought she should want to laugh. She had brought him at last to a shock she had never expected to achieve. But she did not laugh. He thought of Henry Cameron, of Cameron saying, I have no answer to give them, Howard. I'm leaving you to face them. You'll answer them, all of them. The wine and papers, and what makes the wine and papers possible, and what lies behind that. Rourke. He didn't answer. That's worse than Peter Keating, isn't it? she asked. Much worse. Do you want to stop me? No. He had not touched her since he had released her elbow, and that had been only a touch proper in an ambulance. She moved her hand and let it rest against his. He did not withdraw his fingers, and he did not pretend indifference. She bent over, holding his hand, not raising it from his knee, and she pressed her lips to his hand. Her hat fell off. He saw the blonde head at his knees. He felt her mouth kissing his hand again and again. His fingers held hers, answering. But that was the only answer. She raised her head and looked at the street. A lighted window hung in the distance behind a grillwork of bare branches. Small houses stretched off into the darkness, and trees stood by the narrow sidewalks. She noticed her hat on the steps below and bent to pick it up. She leaned with her bare hand flat against the steps. The stone was old, worn smooth, icy. She felt comfort in the touch. She sat for a moment, bent over, palm pressed to the stone, to feel these steps, no matter how many feet had used them, to feel them as she had felt the fire hydrant. Rourke, where do you live? In a rooming house. What kind of room? Just a room. What's in it? What kind of walls? Some sort of wallpaper. Faded. What furniture? A table, chairs, a bed. No. Tell me in detail. There's a clothes closet, then a chest of drawers, the bed in the corner by the window, a large table at the other side. By the wall? No, I put it across the corner to the window. I work there. Then there's a straight chair, an armchair with a bridge lamp and a magazine rack I never use. I think that's all. No rugs? Or curtains? I think there's something at the window and some kind of rug. The floor is nicely polished. It's beautiful old wood. I want to think of your room tonight. On the train. He sat looking across the street. She said, Rourke, let me stay with you tonight. No. He let her glance follow his to the grinding machinery below. After a while, she asked, How did you get this store to design? The owner saw my buildings in New York and liked them. A man in overalls stepped out of the excavation pit, peered into the darkness at them, and called, Is that you up there, boss? Yes, Rourke called back. Come here a minute, will you? Rourke walked to him across the street. She could not hear their conversation, but she heard Rourke saying gaily, That's easy. And then they both walked down the planks to the bottom. The man stood talking, pointing up, explaining. Rourke threw his head back to glance up at the rising steel frame. The light was full on his face, and she saw his look of concentration. Not a smile, but an expression that gave her a joyous feeling of competence, of disciplined reason in action. He bent, picked up a piece of board, took a pencil from his pocket. 
He stood with one foot on a pile of planks, the board propped on his knee, and drew rapidly, explaining something to the man, who nodded, pleased. She could not hear the words, but she felt the quality of Rourke's relation to that man, to all the other men in that pit, an odd sense of loyalty and of brotherhood, but not the kind she had ever heard named by these words. He finished, handed the board to the man, and they both laughed at something. Then he came back and sat down on the steps beside her. Rourke, she said, I want to remain here with you for all the years we might have. He looked at her attentively, waiting. I want to live here. Her voice had the sound of pressure against a dam. I want to live as you live, not to touch my money. I'll give it away to anyone, to Stephen Mallory, if you wish, or to one of Tui's organizations. It doesn't matter. We'll take a house here, like one of these, and I'll keep it for you. Don't laugh. I can. I'll cook. I'll wash your clothes. I'll scrub the floor. And you'll give up architecture. He had not laughed. She saw nothing but an unmoving attention prepared to listen on. Rourke, try to understand. Please, try to understand. I can't bear to see what they're doing to you, what they're going to do. It's too great. You and building and what you feel about it. You can't go on like that for long. It won't last. They won't let you. You're moving to some terrible kind of disaster. It can't end any other way. Give it up. Take some meaningless job, like the quarry. We'll live here. We'll have little and we'll give nothing. We'll live only for what we are and for what we know. He laughed. She heard in the sound of it a surprising touch of consideration for her, the attempt not to laugh, but he couldn't stop it. Dominique. The way he pronounced the name remained with her and made it easier to hear the words that followed. I wish I could tell you that it was a temptation, at least for a moment. But it wasn't. He added, If I were very cruel, I'd accept it, just to see how soon you'd beg me to go back to building. Yes, probably. Mary Wynand, and stay married to him. It will be better than what you're doing to yourself right now. Do you mind if we just sit here for a little while longer and not talk about that? but just talk as if everything were right, just an armistice for half an hour out of years. Tell me what you've done every day you've been here, everything you can remember. Then they talked, as if the stoop of the vacant house were an airplane hanging in space without sight of earth or sky. He did not look across the street. Then he glanced at his wristwatch and said, There's a train for the west in an hour. Shall I go with you to the station? Do you mind if we walk there? All right. She stood up. She asked, Until... When, Rourke? His hand moved over the streets. Until you stop hating all this, stop being afraid of it, learn not to notice it. They walked together to the station. She listened to the sound of his steps with hers in the empty streets. She let her glance drag along the walls they passed like a clinging touch. She loved this place, this town, and everything that was part of it. They were walking past a vacant lot. The wind blew an old sheet of newspaper against her legs. It clung to her with a tight insistence that seemed conscious, like the peremptory caress of a cat. She thought, 
anything of this town had that intimate right to her. She bent, picked up the paper, and began folding it to keep it. What are you doing? he asked. Something to read on the train, she said stupidly. He snatched the paper from her, crumpled it, and flung it away into the weeds. She said nothing, and they walked on. A single light bulb hung over the empty station platform. They waited. He stood looking up at the tracks where the train was to appear. When the tracks rang, shuddering, when the white ball of a headlight spurted out of the distance and stood still in the sky, not approaching, only widening, growing in furious speed, he did not move or turn to her. The rushing beam flung his shadow across the platform, made it sweep over the planks and vanish. For an instant, she saw the tall, straight line of his body against the glare. The engine passed them, and the cars rattled, slowing down. He looked at the windows rolling past. She could not see his face, only the outline of his cheekbone. When the train stopped, he turned to her. They did not shake hands. They did not speak. They stood straight, facing each other for a moment, as if at attention. It was almost like a military salute. Then she picked up her suitcase and went aboard the train. The train started moving a minute later. Chapter 6 Chuck, and why not a muskrat? Why should man imagine himself superior to a muskrat? Life beats in all the small creatures of field and wood. Life singing of eternal sorrow, an old sorrow, the song of songs. We don't understand, but who cares about understanding? Only public accountants and chiropodists, also mailmen. We only love, the sweet mystery of love. That's all there is to it. Give me love and shove all your philosophers up your stovepipe. When Mary took the homeless muskrat, her heart broke open and life and love rushed in. Muskrats make good imitation mink coats, but that's not the point. Life is the point. Jake, rushing in. Say, folks, who's got a stamp with a picture of George Washington on it? Curtain. Ike slammed his manuscript shut and took a long swig of air. His voice was hoarse after two hours of reading aloud, and he had read the climax of his play on a single long breath. He looked at his audience, his mouth smiling in self-mockery, his eyebrows raised insolently but his eyes pleading. Ellsworth Toohey, sitting on the floor, scratched his spine against a chair leg and yawned. Gus Webb stretched out on his stomach in the middle of the room, rolled over on his back. Lancelot Clokey, the foreign correspondent, reached for his highball glass and finished it off. Jules Fogler, the new drama critic of the Banner, sat without moving. He had not moved for two hours. Lois Cook, hostess, raised her arms, twisting them, stretching, and said, Jesus, Ike, it's awful. Lancelot Clokey drawled, Lois, my girl, where do you keep your gin? Don't be such a damn miser. You're the worst hostess I know. Gus Webb said, I don't understand literature. It's non-productive and a waste of time. Authors will be liquidated. Ike laughed shrilly. A stinker, huh? He waved his script. A real super stinker. What do you think I wrote it for? Just show me anyone who can write a bigger flop. Worst play you'll ever hear in your life. It was not a formal meeting of the Council of American Writers, but an unofficial gathering. Ike had asked a few of his friends to listen to his latest work. At twenty-six he had written eleven plays, but never had one produced. 
You'd better give up the theater, Ike, said Lancelot Cloakey. Writing is a serious business, and not for any stray bastard that wants to try it. Lancelot Cloakey's first book, an account of his personal adventures in foreign countries, was in its tenth week on the bestseller list. Why isn't it, Lance? Tui drawled sweetly. All right, snapped Cloakey. All right, give me a drink. It's awful, said Lois Cook, her head lolling wearily from side to side. It's perfectly awful. It's so awful it's wonderful. Balls, said Gus Webb. Why do I ever come here? Ike flung his script at the fireplace. It struck against the wire screen and landed face down, open, the thin pages crushed. If Ibsen can write plays, why can't I? he asked. He's good and I'm lousy, but that's not a sufficient reason. Not in the cosmic sense, said Lancelot Cloakey. Still, you're lousy. You don't have to say it. I said so first. This is a great play, said a voice. The voice was slow, nasal, and bored. It had spoken for the first time that evening, and they all turned to Jules Fogler. A cartoonist had once drawn a famous picture of him. It consisted of two sagging circles, a large one and a small one. The large one was his stomach, the small one his lower lip. He wore a suit beautifully tailored, of a color to which he referred as Mel de Dois. He kept his gloves on at all times, and he carried a cane. He was an eminent drama critic. Jules Fogler stretched out his cane, caught the play script with the hook of the handle, and dragged it across the floor to his feet. He did not pick it up, but he repeated, looking at it, This is a great play. Why? asked Lancelot Cloakey. Because I say so, said Jules Fogler. Is that a gag, Jules? asked Lois Cook. I never gag, said Jules Fogler. It is vulgar. Send me a couple of seats to the opening, sneered Lancelot Cloakey. Eighty-eight for two seats to the opening, said Jules Fogler. It will be the biggest hit of the season. Jules Fogler turned and saw Tui looking at him. Tui smiled, but the smile was not light or careless. It was an approving commentary upon something he considered as very serious indeed. Fogler's glance was contemptuous when he turned to the others, but it relaxed for a moment of understanding when it rested on Tui. "'Why don't you join the Council of American Writers, Jules?' asked Tui. "'I am an individualist,' said Fogler. "'I don't believe in organizations.' Besides, is it necessary? No, not necessary at all, said Tui cheerfully. Not for you, Jules. There's nothing I can teach you. What I like about you, Ellsworth, is that it's never necessary to explain myself to you. Hell, why explain anything here? We're six of a kind. Five, said Fogler. I don't like Gus Webb. Why don't you? asked Gus. He was not offended. "'Because he doesn't wash his ears,' answered Fogler, as if the question had been asked by a third party. "'Oh, that,' said Gus. Ike had risen and stood staring at Fogler, not quite certain whether he should breathe. "'You like my play, Mr. Fogler?' he asked at last, his voice small. "'I haven't said I like it,' Fogler answered coldly. "'I think it smells. That is why it's great.' Oh, said Ike, 
He laughed. He seemed relieved. His glance went around the faces in the room, a glance of sly triumph. Yes, said Fogler. My approach to its criticism is the same as your approach to its writing. Our motives are identical. You're a grand guy, Jules. Mr. Fogler, please. You're a grand guy and the swellest bastard on earth, Mr. Fogler. Fogler turned the pages of the script at his feet with the tip of his cane. Your typing is atrocious, Ike, he said. Hell, I'm not a stenographer. I'm a creative artist. You will be able to afford a secretary after this show opens. I shall be obliged to praise it, if for no other reason than to prevent any further abuse of a typewriter such as this. The typewriter is a splendid instrument, not to be outraged. All right, Jules, said Lancelot Cloakey. It's all very witty and smart, and you're sophisticated and brilliant as all get out. But what do you actually want to praise that crap for? Because it is, as you put it, crap. You're not logical, Lance, said Ike. Not in the cosmic sense you aren't. To write a good play and to have it praised is nothing. Anybody can do that, anybody with talent. And talent is only a glandular accident. But to write a piece of crap and have it praised? Well, you match that. He has, said Tui. That's a matter of opinion, said Lancelot Cloakey. He upturned his empty glass over his mouth and sucked at a last piece of ice. Ike understands things much better than you do, Lance, said Jules Fogler. He has just proved himself to be a real thinker in that little speech of his, which, incidentally, was better than his whole play. I'll write my next play about that, said Ike. Ike has stated his reasons, Fogler continued, and mine, and also yours, Lance. Examine my case, if you wish. What achievement is there for a critic in praising a good play? None whatever. The critic is then nothing but a kind of glorified messenger boy between author and public. What's there in that for me? I'm sick of it. I have a right to wish to impress my own personality upon people, otherwise I shall become frustrated. And I do not believe in frustration. But if a critic is able to put over a perfectly worthless play, ah, you do perceive the difference. Therefore I shall make a hit out of... What's the name of your play, Ike? No skin off your ass, said Ike. I beg your pardon. That's the title. Oh, I see. Therefore I shall make a hit out of No Skin Off Your Ass. Lois Cook laughed loudly. You all make too damn much fuss about everything, said Gus Webb, lying flat, his hands entwined under his head. Now, if you wish to consider your own case, Lance, Fogler went on, what satisfaction is there for a correspondent in reporting on world events? The public reads about all sorts of international crises, and you're lucky if they even notice your byline. But you're every bit as good as any general, admiral, or ambassador. You have a right to make people conscious of yourself. So you've done the wise thing. You've written a remarkable collection of bilge. Yes, bilge, but morally justified. A clever book. World catastrophes used as a backdrop for your own nasty little personality. How Lancelot Cloakey got drunk at an international conference. What beauties slept with Lancelot Cloakey during an invasion. How Lancelot Cloakey got dysentery in a land of famine. Well, why not, Lance? It went over, didn't it? Ellsworth put it over, didn't he? 
The public appreciates good human interest stuff, said Lancelot Cloakey, looking angrily into his glass. Oh, can the crap, Lance, cried Lois Cook. Who are you acting for here? You know damn well it wasn't any kind of a human interest, but plain Ellsworth, too, he. I don't forget what I owe Ellsworth, said Cloakey sullenly. Ellsworth's my best friend. Still, he couldn't have done it if he didn't have a good book to do it with. Eight months ago, Lancelot Cloakey had stood with a manuscript in his hand before Ellsworth Toohey, as Ike stood before Fogler now, not believing it when Toohey told him that his book would top the bestseller list. The two hundred thousand copies sold had made it impossible for Cloakey ever to recognize any truth again in any form. Well, he did it with the gallant gallstone, said Lois Cook, placidly. And a worse piece of trash never was put down on paper, I ought to know. But he did it. And almost lost my job doing it, said Tui indifferently. What do you do with your liquor, Lois? snapped Cloakey. Save it to take a bath in? All right, blotter, said Lois Cook, rising lazily. She shuffled across the room picked somebody's unfinished drink off the floor, drank the remnant, walked out and came back with an assortment of expensive bottles. Cloakey and Ike hurried to help themselves. "'I think you're unfair to Lance, Lois,' said Tui. "'Why shouldn't he write an autobiography?' "'Because his life wasn't worth living, let alone recording.' "'Ah, but that is precisely why I made it a bestseller. "'You're telling me? "'I like to tell someone.' There were many comfortable chairs around him, but Tui preferred to remain on the floor. He rolled over to his stomach, propping his torso upright on his elbows, and he lolled pleasurably, switching his weight from elbow to elbow, his legs spread out in a wide fork on the carpet. He seemed to enjoy unrestraint. I like to tell someone. Next month I'm pushing the autobiography of a small-town dentist who's really a remarkable person, because there's not a single remarkable day in his life nor sentence in his book. You'll like it, Lois. Can you imagine a solid bromide undressing his soul as if it were a revelation? The little people, said Ike tenderly. I love the little people. We must love the little people of this earth. Save that for your next play, said Tui. I can't, said Ike. It's in this one. What's the big idea, Ellsworth? snapped Cloakey. Why, it's simple, Lance. When the fact that one is a total non-entity who's done nothing more outstanding than eating, sleeping, and chatting with neighbors becomes a fact worthy of pride, of announcement to the world, and of diligent study by millions of readers, the fact that one has built a cathedral becomes unrecordable and unannounceable, a matter of perspectives and relativity. The distance permissible between the extremes of any particular capacity is limited. The sound perception of an ant does not include thunder. You talk like a decadent bourgeois, Ellsworth, said Gus Webb. Pipe down, sweetie pie, said Tui, without resentment. It's all very wonderful, said Lois Cook, except that you're doing too well, Ellsworth. You'll run me out of business. Pretty soon, if I still want to be noticed, I'll have to write something that's actually good. Not in this century, Lois, said Tui, and perhaps not in the next. It's later than you think. But you haven't said, Ike cried suddenly, worried. What haven't I said? You haven't said who's going to produce my play. Leave that to me, said Jules Fogler. I forgot to thank you, Ellsworth, said Ike solemnly. 
So now I thank you. There are lots of bum plays, but you picked mine. You and Mr. Fogler. Your bumness is serviceable, Ike. Well, that's something. It's a great deal. How? For instance. Don't talk too much, Ellsworth, said Gus Webb. You've got a talking jag. Shut your face, Cupid doll. I like to talk. For instance, Ike. Well, for instance, suppose I didn't like Ibsen. Ibsen is good, said Ike. Sure he's good. But suppose I didn't like him. Suppose I wanted to stop people from seeing his plays. It would do me no good whatever to tell them so. But if I sold them the idea that you're just as great as Ibsen, pretty soon they wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Jesus, can you? It's only an example, Ike. But it would be wonderful. Yes, it would be wonderful. And then it wouldn't matter what they went to see at all. Then nothing would matter, neither the writers nor those for whom they wrote. How's that, Ellsworth? Look, Ike, there's no room in the theater for both Ibsen and you. You do understand that, don't you? In a manner of speaking, yes. Well, you do want me to make room for you, don't you? All of this useless discussion has been covered before and much better, said Gus Webb. Shorter. I believe in functional economy. Where's it covered, Gus? asked Lois Cook. Who had been nothing shall be all, sister. Gus is crude, but deep, said Ike. I like him. Go to hell, said Gus. Lois Cook's butler entered the room. He was a stately elderly man, and he wore full-dress evening clothes. He announced Peter Keating. Pete, said Lois Cook, gaily. Why, sure, shove him in, shove him right in. Keating entered and stopped, startled when he saw the gathering. Oh, hello, everybody, he said bleakly. I didn't know you had company, Lois. That's not company. Come in, Peter, sit down, grab yourself a drink. You know everybody. Hello, Ellsworth, said Keating, his eyes resting on Tui for support. Tui waved his hand, scrambled to his feet, and settled down in an armchair, crossing his legs gracefully. Everybody in the room adjusted himself automatically to a sudden control, to sit straighter, to bring knees together, to pull in a relaxed mouth. Only Gus Webb remained stretched as before. Keating looked cool and handsome, bringing into the unventilated room the freshness of a walk through cold streets. But he was pale, and his movements were slow, tired. Sorry if I intrude, Lois, he said. Had nothing to do and felt so damn lonely, thought I'd drop in. He slurred over the word lonely, throwing it away with a self-deprecatory smile. Damn tired of Neil Dumont and the bunch, wanted more uplifting company. Sort of spiritual food, huh? I'm a genius, said Ike. I'll have a play on Broadway. Me and Ibsen. Ellsworth said so. Ike has just read his new play to us, said Tui. A magnificent piece of work. You'll love it, Peter, said Lancelot Cloakey. It's really great. It is a masterpiece, said Jules Fogler. I hope you will prove yourself worthy of it, Peter. It is the kind of play that depends upon what the members of the audience are capable of bringing with them into the theater. If you are one of those literal-minded people with a dry soul and a limited imagination, it is not for you. But if you are a real human being, with a big, big heart, full of laughter 
who has preserved the uncorrupted capacity of his childhood for pure emotion, he will find it an unforgettable experience. Except as ye become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, said Ellsworth Tui. Thanks, Ellsworth, said Jules Fogler. That will be the lead of my review. Keating looked at Ike, at the others, his eyes eager. They all seemed remote and pure, far above him in the safety of their knowledge, but their faces had hints of smiling warmth, a benevolent invitation extended downward. Keating drank the sense of their greatness, the spiritual food he sought in coming here, and felt himself rising through them. They saw their greatness made real by him. A circuit was established in the room, and the circle closed. Everybody was conscious of that, except Peter Keating. Ellsworth Toohey came out in support of the cause of modern architecture. In the past ten years, while most of the new residences continued to be built as faithful historical copies, the principles of Henry Cameron had won the field of commercial structures, the factories, the office buildings, the skyscrapers. It was a pale, distorted victory, a reluctant compromise that consisted of omitting columns and pediments, allowing a few stretches of wall to remain naked, apologizing for a shape, good through accident, by finishing it off with an edge of simplified Grecian volutes. Many stole Cameron's forms. Few understood his thinking. The sole part of his argument, irresistible to the owners of new structures, was financial economy. He won to that extent. In the countries of Europe, most prominently in Germany, a new school of building had been growing for a long time. It consisted of putting up four walls and a flat top over them with a few openings. This was called new architecture. The freedom from arbitrary rules for which Cameron had fought, the freedom that imposed a great new responsibility on the creative builder, became a mere elimination of all effort, even the effort of mastering historical styles. It became a rigid set of new rules, the discipline of conscious incompetence, creative poverty made into a system, mediocrity boastfully confessed. A building creates its own beauty, and its ornament is derived from the rules of its theme and its structure, Cameron had said. A building needs no beauty, no ornament, and no theme, said the new architects. It was safe to say it. Cameron and a few men had broken the path and paved it with their lives. Other men, of whom there were greater numbers, the men who had been safe in copying the Parthenon, saw the danger and found a way to security. To walk Cameron's path, and make it lead them to a new Parthenon, an easier Parthenon, in the shape of a packing crate of glass and concrete. The palm tree had broken through. The fungus came to feed on it, to deform it, to hide, to pull it back into the common jungle. The jungle found its words. In one small voice, subtitled, I Swim with the Current, Ellsworth Tui wrote, we have hesitated for a long time to acknowledge the powerful phenomenon known as modern architecture. Such caution is requisite in anyone who stands in the position of mentor to the public taste. Too often, isolated manifestations of anomaly can be mistaken for a broad popular movement, and one should be careful not to ascribe to them a significance they do not deserve. But modern architecture has stood the test of time, has answered a demand of the masses, and we are glad to salute it.
It is not amiss to offer a measure of recognition to the pioneers of this movement, such as the late Henry Cameron. Premonitory echoes of the new grandeur can be found in some of his work, but like all pioneers, he was still bound by the inherited prejudices of the past, by the sentimentality of the middle class from which he came. He succumbed to the superstition of beauty and ornament, even though the ornament was of his own devising, and consequently inferior to that of established historical forms. It remained for the power of a broad collective movement to bring modern architecture to its full and true expression. Now it can be seen, growing throughout the world, not as a chaos of individual fancies, but as a cohesive organized discipline which makes severe demands upon the artist, among them the demand to subordinate himself to the collective nature of his craft. The rules of this new architecture have been formulated by the vast process of popular creation. They are as strict as the rules of classicism. They demand unadorned simplicity, like the honesty of the unspoiled common man. Just as in the passing age of international bankers every building had to have an ostentatious cornice, so now the coming age ordains that every building have a flat roof. Just as the imperialist era required a Roman portico on every house, so the era of humanity requires that every house have corner windows, symbol of the sunshine distributed equally to all. The discriminating will see the social significance eloquent in the forms of this new architecture. Under the old system of exploitation, the most useful social elements, the workers, were never permitted to realize their importance. Their practical functions were kept hidden and disguised. Thus, a master had his servants dressed up in fancy gold-braided livery. This was reflected in the architecture of the period. The functional elements of a building, its doors, windows, stairways, were hidden under the scrolls of pointless ornamentation, but in a modern building. It is precisely these useful elements, symbols of toil, that come starkly in the open. Do we not hear in this the voice of a new world, where the worker shall come into his own? As the best example of modern architecture in America, we call to your attention the new plant of the Bassett Brush Company, soon to be completed. It is a small building, but in its modest proportion it embodies all the grim simplicity of the new discipline and presents an invigorating example of the grandeur of the little. It was designed by Augustus Webb, a young architect of great promise. Meeting Tui a few days later, Peter Keating asked, disturbed, Say, Ellsworth, did you mean it? What? About modern architecture? Of course I meant it. How did you like my little piece? Oh, I thought it was very beautiful, very convincing. But say, Ellsworth, why... Why did you pick Gus Webb? After all, I've done some modernistic things in the last few years. The Palmer Building was quite bare, and the Maori Building was nothing but roof and windows, and the Shelton Warehouse was... Now, Peter, don't be a hog. I've done pretty well by you, haven't I? Let me give somebody else a boost once in a while. At a luncheon, where he had to speak on architecture, Peter Keating stated, In reviewing my career to date, I came to the conclusion that I have worked on a true principle, the principle that constant change is a necessity of life. Since buildings are an indispensable part of life, it follows that architecture must change constantly. I have never developed any architectural prejudices for myself, but insisted on keeping my mind open to all the voices of the times. 
The fanatics who went around preaching that all structures must be modern were just as narrow-minded as the high-bound conservatives who demanded that we employ nothing but historical styles. I do not apologize for those of my buildings which were designed in the classical tradition. They were an answer to the need of their era. Neither do I apologize for the buildings which I designed in the modern style. They represent the coming better world. It is my opinion that in the humble realization of this principle lies the reward and the joy of being an architect. There was gratifying publicity and many flattering comments of envy in professional circles when the news of Peter Keating's selection to build Stone Ridge was made public. He tried to recapture his old pleasure in such manifestations. He failed. He still felt something that resembled gladness, but it was faded and thin. The effort of designing Stone Ridge seemed a load too vast to lift. He did not mind the circumstances through which he had obtained it. That, too, had become pale and weightless in his mind, accepted and almost forgotten. He simply could not face the task of designing the great number of houses that Stone Ridge required. He felt very tired. He felt tired when he awakened in the morning, and he found himself waiting all day for the time when he would be able to go back to bed. He turned Stone Ridge over to Neil Dumont and Bennett. Go ahead, he said wearily. Do what you want. What style, Pete? Dumont asked. Oh, make it some sort of period. The small homeowners won't go for it otherwise, but trim it down a little for the press comments. Give it historical touches and a modern feeling. Any way you wish, I don't care. Dumont and Bennett went ahead. Keating changed a few roof lines on their sketches, a few windows. The preliminary drawings were approved by Winant's office. Keating did not know whether Winant had approved in person. He did not see Winant again. Dominique had been away a month when Guy Francon announced his retirement. Keating had told him about the divorce, offering no explanation. Francon had taken the news calmly. He had said, I expected it. It's all right, Peter. It's probably not your fault, nor hers. He had not mentioned it since. Now he gave no explanation of his retirement, only, I told you it was coming long ago. I'm tired. Good luck, Peter. The responsibility of the firm on his lonely shoulders and the prospect of his solitary name on the office door left Keating uneasy. He needed a partner. He chose Neil Dumont. Neil had grace and distinction. He was another Lucius Hire. The firm became Peter Keating and Cornelius Dumont. Some sort of drunken celebration of the event was held by a few friends, but Keating did not attend it. He had promised to attend, but he forgot about it, went for a solitary weekend in the snowbound country, and did not remember the celebration until the morning after it was held, when he was walking alone down a frozen country road. Stone Ridge was the last contract signed by the firm of Frank Cohn and Keating. Chapter 7 When Dominique stepped off the train in New York, Winant was there to meet her. She had not written to him nor heard from him during the weeks of her residence in Reno. She had notified no one of her return. But his figure standing on the platform, standing calmly with an air of finality, told her that he had kept in touch with her lawyers, had followed every step of the divorce proceedings, had known the date when the decree was granted, the hour when she took the train, and the number of her compartment. 
He did not move forward when he saw her. It was she who walked to him, because she knew that he wanted to see her walking, if only the short space between them. She did not smile, but her face had the lovely serenity that can become a smile without transition. Hello, Gail. Hello, Dominique. She had not thought of him in his absence, not sharply, not with a personal feeling of his reality, but now she felt an immediate recognition, a sense of reunion with someone known and needed. He said, Give me your baggage checks. I'll have it attended to later. My car is outside. She handed him the checks, and he slipped them into his pocket. They knew they must turn and walk up the platform to the exit, but the decisions both had made in advance broke down in the same instant, because they did not turn, but remained standing, looking at each other. He made the first effort to correct the breach. He smiled lightly. If I had the right to say it, I'd say that I couldn't have endured the waiting had I known that you'd look as you do. But since I have no such right, I'm not going to say it. She laughed. All right, Gail. That was a form of pretense, too, our being too casual. It makes things more important, not less, doesn't it? Let's say whatever we wish. I love you, he said, his voice expressionless, as if the words were a statement of pain and not addressed to her. I'm glad to be back with you, Gail. I didn't know I would be, but I'm glad. In what way, Dominique? I don't know. In a way of contagion from you, I think. In a way of finality and peace. Then they noticed that this was said in the middle of a crowded platform with people and baggage racks hurrying past. They walked out to the street to his car. She did not ask where they were going and did not care. She sat silently beside him. She felt divided, most of her swept by a wish not to resist, and a small part of her left to wonder about it. She felt a desire to let him carry her, a feeling of confidence without appraisal, not a happy confidence, but confidence. After a while she noticed that her hand lay in his, the length of her gloved fingers held to the length of his, only the spot of her bare wrist pressed to his skin. She had not noticed him take her hand. It seemed so natural, and what she had wanted from the moment of seeing him, that she would not allow herself to want it. Where are we going, Gail? she asked. To get the license, then to the judge's office, to be married. She sat up slowly, turning to face him. She did not withdraw her hand, but her fingers became rigid, conscious, taken away from him. No, she said. She smiled, and held the smile too long, in deliberate, fixed precision. He looked at her calmly. I want a real wedding, Gail. I want it at the most ostentatious hotel in town. I want engraved invitations, guests, mobs of guests, celebrities, flowers, flashbulbs, and newsreel cameras. I want the kind of wedding the public expects of Gail Wynand. He released her fingers, simply without resentment. He looked abstracted for a moment, as if he were calculating a problem in arithmetic, not too difficult. Then he said, all right. That will take a week to arrange. I could have done it tonight, but if it's engraved invitations, we must give the guests a week's notice at the least. Otherwise it would look abnormal, and you want a normal Gail Wynand wedding. I'll have to take you to a hotel now where you can live for a week. 
I had not planned for this, so I've made no reservations. Where would you like to stay? At your penthouse? No. The Nordland, then. He leaned forward and said to the chauffeur, The Nordland, John. In the lobby of the hotel, he said to her, I will see you a week from today, Tuesday, at the Noise Belmont at four o'clock in the afternoon. The invitations will have to be in the name of your father. Let him know that I'll get in touch with him. I'll attend to the rest. He bowed, his manner unchanged, his calm still holding the same peculiar quality made of two things. The mature control of a man so certain of his capacity for control that it could seem casual. And a childlike simplicity of accepting events as if they were subject to no possible change. She did not see him during that week. She found herself waiting impatiently. She saw him again when she stood beside him, facing the judge who pronounced the words of the marriage ceremony over the silence of six hundred people in the floodlighted ballroom of the Noise Belmont Hotel. The background, she had wished, was set so perfectly that it became its own caricature, not a specific society wedding, but an impersonal prototype of lavish, exquisite vulgarity. He had understood her wish and obeyed scrupulously. He had refused himself the relief of exaggeration. He had not staged the event crudely, but made it beautiful in the exact manner Gail Wynand, the publisher, would have chosen had he wished to be married in public. But Gail Wynand did not wish to be married in public. He made himself fit the setting, as if he were part of the bargain, subject to the same style. When he entered, she saw him looking at the mob of guests as if he did not realize that such a mob was appropriate to a grand opera premiere or a royal rummage sale, not to the solemn climax of his life. He looked correct, incomparably distinguished. Then she stood with him, the mob becoming a heavy silence and a gluttonous stare behind him, and they faced the judge together. She wore a long black dress with a bouquet of fresh jasmine, his present attached by a black band to her wrist. Her face in the halo of a black lace hat was raised to the judge, who spoke slowly, letting his words hang one by one in the air. She glanced at Wynant. He was not looking at her nor at the judge. Then she knew that he was alone in that room. He held this moment, and he made of it, of the glare of the vulgarity, a silent height of his own. He had not wished a religious ceremony, which he did not respect, and he could have less respect for the state's functionary reciting a formula before him. But he made the right an act of pure religion. She thought, if she were being married to Rourke in such a setting, Rourke would stand like this. Afterward, the mockery of the monster reception that followed left him immune. He posed with her for the battery of press cameras, and he complied gracefully with all the demands of the reporters, a special noisier mob within the mob. He stood with her in the receiving line, shaking an assembly belt of hands that unrolled past them for hours. He looked untouched by the lights, the haystacks of Easter lilies, the sounds of a string orchestra, the river of people flowing on and breaking into a delta when it reached the champagne. Untouched by these guests who had come here driven by boredom, by an envious hatred, a reluctant submission to an invitation bearing his dangerous name, a scandal-hungry curiosity. He looked as if he did not know that they took his public immolation as their rightful due, that they considered their presence as the indispensable seal of sacrament upon the occasion, that of all the hundreds, 
he and his bride were the only ones to whom the performance was hideous. She watched him intently. She wanted to see him take pleasure in all this, if only for a moment. Let him accept and join, just once, she thought. Let him show the soul of the New York banner in its proper element. She saw no acceptance. She saw a hint of pain at times. Even the pain did not reach him completely. And she thought of the only other man she knew who had spoken about suffering that went down only to a certain point. When the last congratulations had drifted past them, they were free to leave by the rules of the occasion. But he made no move to leave. She knew he was waiting for her decision. She walked away from him into the current of guests. She smiled, bowed, and listened to offensive nonsense, a glass of champagne in her hand. She saw her father in the throng. He looked proud and wistful. He seemed bewildered. He had taken the announcement of her marriage quietly. He had said, I want you to be happy, Dominique. I want it very much. I hope he's the right man. His tone had said that he was not certain. She saw Ellsworth Toohey in the crowd. He noticed her looking at him and turned away quickly. She wanted to laugh aloud, but the matter of Ellsworth Toohey caught off guard did not seem important enough to laugh about now. Alva Scarrett pushed his way toward her. He was making a poor effort at a suitable expression, but his face looked hurt and sullen. He muttered something rapid about his wishes for her happiness, but then he said distinctly, and with a lively anger, But why, Dominique? Why? She could not quite believe that Alva Scarrett would permit himself the crudeness of what the question seemed to mean. She asked coldly, What are you talking about, Alva? The veto, of course. What veto? You know very well what veto. Now I ask you, with every sheet in the city here, every damn one of them, the lousiest tabloid included, and the wire services, too. Everything but the banner. Everything but the wine and papers. What am I to tell people? How am I to explain? Is that a thing for you to do to a former comrade of the trade? You'd better repeat that, Alva. You mean you didn't know that Gale wouldn't allow a single one of our boys here? That we won't have any stories tomorrow? Not a spread, not a picture? Nothing but two lines on page 18? No, she said. I didn't know it. He wondered at the sudden jerk of her movement as she turned away from him. She handed the champagne glass to the first stranger in sight, whom she mistook for a waiter. She made her way through the crowd to Wynand. Let's go, Gail. Yes, my dear. She stood incredulously in the middle of the drawing room of his penthouse, thinking that this place was now her home, and how right it looked to be her home. He watched her. He showed no desire to speak or touch her, only to observe her here in his house, brought here, lifted high over the city, as if the significance of the moment were not to be shared, not even with her. She moved slowly across the room, took off her hat, leaned against the edge of a table. She wondered why her normal desire to say little, to hold things closed, broke down before him, why she felt compelled to simple frankness, such as she could offer no one else. You've had your way after all, Gail. You were married as you wanted to be married. Yes, I think so. It was useless to try to torture you. Actually, yes. But I didn't mind it too much. 
You didn't? No. If that's what you wanted, it was only a matter of keeping my promise. But you hated it, Gail. Utterly. What of it? Only the first moment was hard, when you said it in the car. Afterward, I was rather glad of it. He spoke quietly, matching her frankness. She knew he would leave her the choice. He would follow her manner. He would keep silent or admit anything she wished to be admitted. Why? Didn't you notice your own mistake? If it was a mistake. You wouldn't have wanted to make me suffer if you were completely indifferent to me. No, it was not a mistake. You're a good loser, Dominique. I think that's also contagion from you, Gail. And there's something I want to thank you for. What? That you barred our wedding from the wine and papers? He looked at her, his eyes alert in a special way for a moment. Then he smiled. It's out of character. You're thanking me for that. It was out of character for you to do it. I had to. But I thought you'd be angry. I should have been. But I wasn't. I'm not. I thank you. Can one feel gratitude for gratitude? It's a little hard to express, but that's what I feel, Dominique. She looked at the soft light on the walls around her. That lighting was part of the room, giving the walls a special texture of more than material or color. She thought that there were other rooms beyond these walls, rooms she had never seen, which were hers now. And she found that she wanted them to be hers. Gail, I haven't asked what we are to do now. Are we going away? Are we having a honeymoon? Funny, I haven't even wondered about it. I thought of the wedding and nothing beyond, as if it stopped there and you took over from then on. Also out of character, Gail? But not in my favor this time. Passivity is not a good sign, not for you. It might be, if I'm glad of it. Might, though it won't last. No, we're not going anywhere. Unless you wish to go? No. Then we stay here. Another peculiar manner of making an exception. The proper manner for you and me. Going away has always been running for both of us. This time, we don't run. Yes, Gail. When he held her and kissed her, her arm lay bent, pressed between her body and his, her hand at her shoulder and she felt her cheek touching the faded jasmine bouquet on her wrist, its perfume still intact, still a delicate suggestion of spring. When she entered his bedroom, she found that it was not the place she had seen photographed in countless magazines. The glass cage had been demolished. The room built in its place was a solid vault without a single window. It was lighted and air-conditioned, but neither light nor air came from the outside. She lay in his bed, and she pressed her palms to the cold, smooth sheet at her sides, not to let her arms move and touch him. But her rigid indifference did not drive him to helpless anger. He understood. He laughed. She heard him say, his voice rough, without consideration, amused. It won't do, Dominique. And she knew that this barrier would not be held between them, that she had no power to hold it. She felt the answer in her body an answer of hunger, of acceptance, of pleasure. She thought that it was not a matter of desire, not even a matter of the sexual act, but only that man was the life force 
and woman could respond to nothing else. That this man had the will of life, the prime power, and this act was only its simplest statement. And she was responding not to the act nor to the man, but to that force within him. Well, asked Ellsworth Toohey, now do you get the point? He stood leaning informally against the back of Scarrett's chair, and Scarrett sat staring down at a hamperful of mail by the side of his desk. Thousands, sighed Scarrett. Thousands, Ellsworth. You ought to see what they call him. Why didn't he print the story of his wedding? What's he ashamed of? What's he got to hide? Why didn't he get married in church like any decent man? How could he marry a divorcee? That's what they're all asking. Thousands. And he won't even look at the letters. Gail Wynand, the man they call the seismograph of public opinion. That's right, said Tui. That kind of a man. Here's a sample. Scarrett picked up a letter from his desk and read aloud. I'm a respectable woman and mother of five children, and I certainly don't think I want to bring up my children with your newspaper. Have taken the same for fourteen years, but now that you show that you're the kind of man that has no decency in making a mockery of the holy institution of marriage, which is to commit adultery with a fallen woman, also another man's wife, who gets married in a black dress, as she jolly well ought to, I won't read your newspaper any more, as you're not a man fit for children, and I'm certainly disappointed in you. Very truly yours, Mrs. Thomas Parker. I read it to him. He just laughed. Uh-huh, said Tui. What's got into him? It's nothing that got into him, Alva. It's something that got out at last. By the way, did you know that many papers dug up their old pictures of Dominique's nude statue from that goddamn temple and ran it right with the wedding story? To show Mrs. Winan's interest in art. The bastards. Are they glad to get back at Gale? Are they giving it to him, the lice? Wonder who reminded them of that one. I wouldn't know. Well, of course, it's just one of those storms in a teacup. They'll forget all about it in a few weeks. I don't think it will do much harm. No. Not this incident alone. Not by itself. Huh? Are you predicting something? Those letters predicted Alva. Not the letters as such, but that he wouldn't read them. Oh, it's no use getting too silly, either. Gale knows where to stop and when. Don't make a mountain out of a mole. He glanced up at Tui, and his voice switched to, Christ, yes, Ellsworth, you're right. What are we going to do? Nothing, my friend, nothing. Not for a long time yet. Tui sat down on the edge of Scarrett's desk and let the tip of his pointed shoe play among the envelopes in the hamper, tossing them up, making them rustle. He had acquired a pleasant habit of dropping in and out of Scarrett's office at all hours. Scarrett had come to depend on him. Say, Ellsworth, Scarrett asked suddenly. Are you really loyal to the banner? Alva, don't talk in dialect. Nobody's really that stuffy. No, I mean it. Well, you know what I mean. Haven't the faintest idea. Who's ever disloyal to his bread and butter? Yeah, that's so. Still, you know, Ellsworth, I like you a lot. Only I'm never sure when you're just talking my language or when it's really yours. Don't go getting yourself into psychological complexities. You'll get all tangled up. What's on your mind? Why do you still write for the New Frontiers? For money. Oh, come on, that's chicken feed to you. Well, it's a prestige magazine. Why shouldn't I write for them? You haven't got an exclusive on me. No, 
and I don't care who you write for on the side, but the new Frontiers has been damn funny lately. About what? About Gail Wynand. Oh, rubbish, Alva. No, sir, this isn't rubbish. You just haven't noticed. Guess you don't read it close enough. But I've got an instinct about things like that, and I know. I know when it's just some smart young punk taking pot shots, or when a magazine means business. You're nervous, Alva, and you're exaggerating. The New Frontiers is a liberal magazine, and they've always sniped at Gail Winant. Everybody has. He's never been any too popular in the trade, you know. Hasn't hurt him, though, has it? This is different. I don't like it when there's a system behind it, a kind of special purpose, like a lot of little trickles dribbling along all innocently, and pretty soon they make a little stream, and it all fits pat, and pretty soon... Getting a persecution mania, Alva. I don't like it. It was all right when people took cracks at his yachts and women and a few municipal election scandals, which were never proved, he added hastily. But I don't like it when it's that new intelligentsia slang that people seem to be going for nowadays. Gail Wynand, the exploiter. Gail Wynand, the pirate of capitalism. Gail Wynand, the disease of an era. It's still crap, Ellsworth. Only there's dynamite in that kind of crap. It's just the modern way of saying the same old things, nothing more. Besides, I can't be responsible for the policy of a magazine just because I sell them an article once in a while. Yeah, but... That's not what I hear. What do you hear? I hear you're financing the damn thing. Who, me? With what? Well, not you yourself, exactly. But I hear it was you who got young Ronnie Pickering, the booze hound, to give them a shot in the arm to the tune of one hundred thousand smackers, just about when New Frontiers was going the way of all frontiers. Hell, that was just to save Ronnie from the town's most expensive gutters. The kid was going to the dogs. It gave him a sort of higher purpose in life and put one hundred thousand smackers to better use than the chorus cuties who'd have got it out of him anyway. Yeah, but you could have attached a little string to the gift, slipped word to the editors that they'd better lay off Gale or else. The New Frontiers is not the banner, Alva. It's a magazine of principles. One doesn't attach strings to its editors, and one doesn't tell them or else. In this game, Ellsworth? Whom are you kidding? Well. If it will set your mind at rest, I'll tell you something you haven't heard. It's not supposed to be known. It was done through a lot of proxies. Did you know that I got Mitchell Layton to buy a nice fat chunk of the banner? No. Yes. Christ, Ellsworth, that's great. Mitchell Layton? We can use a reservoir like that and... Wait a minute. Mitchell Layton? Yes. What's wrong with Mitchell Layton? Isn't he the little boy who couldn't digest Grandpa's money? Grandpa left him an awful lot of money. Yeah, but he's a crackpot. He's the one who's been a yogi, then a vegetarian, then a unitarian, then a nudist. And now he's gone to build a palace of the proletariat in Moscow. So what? But Jesus! A red among our stockholders? Mitch isn't a red. How can one be a red with a quarter of a billion dollars? He's just a pale tea rose. Mostly yellow, but a nice kid at heart. But on the banner? Alva, you're an ass. Don't you see, I've made him put some dough into a good, solid, conservative paper that'll cure him of his pink notions and set him in the right direction. Besides, what harm can he do? Your dear Gale controls his papers, doesn't he? Does Gale know about this? No. 
Dear Gale hasn't been as watchful in the last five years as he used to be, and you'd better not tell him. You see the way Gale's going. He'll need a little pressure, and you'll need the dough. Be nice to Mitch Layton. He can come in handy. That's so. It is. You see, my heart's in the right place. I've helped a puny little liberal mag like the New Frontiers, but I've also brought a much more substantial hunk of cash to a big stronghold of arch-conservatism, such as the New York Banner. So you have. Damn decent of you, too, considering that you're a kind of radical yourself. Now, are you going to talk about any disloyalty? Guess not. Guess you'll stand by the old banner? Of course I will. Why, I love the banner. I'd do anything for it. Why, I'd give my life for the New York banner. Chapter 8 Walking the soil of a desert island holds one anchored to the rest of the earth. But in their penthouse, with the telephone disconnected, Wynand and Dominique had no feeling of the fifty-seven floors below them, of steel shafts braced against granite, and it seemed to them that their home was anchored in space, not an island, but a planet. The city became a friendly site, an abstraction with which no possible communication could be established, like the sky, a spectacle to be admired, but of no direct concern in their lives. For two weeks after their wedding they never left the penthouse. She could have pressed the button of the elevator and broken these weeks any time she wished. She did not wish it. She had no desire to resist, to wonder, to question. It was enchantment and peace. He sat talking to her for hours when she wanted. He was content to sit silently when she preferred, and look at her, as he looked at the objects in his art gallery, with the same distant, undisturbing glance. He answered any question she put to him. He never asked questions. He never spoke of what he felt. When she wished to be alone, he did not call for her. One evening she sat reading in her room and saw him standing at the frozen parapet of the dark roof garden outside, not looking back at the house, only standing in the streak of light from her window. When the two weeks ended, he went back to his work, to the office of the banner. But the sense of isolation remained, like a theme declared and to be preserved through all their future days. He came home in the evening, and the city ceased to exist. He had no desire to go anywhere. He invited no guests. He never mentioned it, but she knew that he did not want her to step out of the house, neither with him nor alone. It was a quiet obsession, which he did not expect to enforce. When he came home, he asked, Have you been out? Never. Where have you been? It was not jealousy. The where did not matter. When she wanted to buy a pair of shoes, he had three stores send a collection of shoes for her choice. It prevented her visit to a store. When she said she wanted to see a certain picture, he had a projection room built on the roof. She obeyed for the first few months. When she realized that she loved their isolation, she broke it at once. She made him accept invitations, and she invited guests to their home. He complied without protest but he maintained a wall she could not break. The wall he had erected between his wife and his newspapers. Her name never appeared in their pages. He stopped every attempt to draw Mrs. Gale Wynand into public life, to head committees, sponsor charity drives, endorse crusades. He did not hesitate to open her mail, if it bore an official letterhead that betrayed its purpose, to destroy it without answer, 
and to tell her that he had destroyed it. She shrugged and said nothing. Yet he did not seem to share her contempt for his papers. He did not allow her to discuss them. She could not discover what he thought of them, nor what he felt. Once, when she commented on an offensive editorial, he said coldly, I've never apologized for the banner. I never will. But this is really awful, Gail. I thought you married me as the publisher of the banner. I thought you didn't like to think of that. What I like or dislike doesn't concern you. Don't expect me to change the banner or sacrifice it. I wouldn't do that for anyone on earth. She laughed. I wouldn't ask it, Gail. He did not laugh in answer. In his office in the Banner Building, he worked with a new energy, a kind of elated, ferocious drive that surprised the men who had known him in his most ambitious years. He stayed in the office all night, when necessary, as he had not done for a long time. Nothing changed in his methods and policy. Alva Scarrett watched him with satisfaction. We were wrong about him, Ellsworth, said Scarrett to his constant companion. It's the same old Gale, God bless him, better than ever. My dear Alva, said Tui, nothing is ever as simple as you think, nor as fast. But he's happy, don't you see that he's happy? To be happy is the most dangerous thing that could have happened to him. And as a humanitarian, for once, I mean this for his own sake. Sally Brent decided to outwit her boss. Sally Brent was one of the proudest possessions of the banner, a stout middle-aged woman who dressed like a model for a style show of the twenty-first century and wrote like a chambermaid. She had a large personal following among the readers of the banner. Her popularity made her overconfident. Sally Brent decided to do a story on Mrs. Gail Wynand. It was just her type of story, and there it was simply going to waste. She gained admittance to Wynand's penthouse, using the tactics of gaining admittance to places where one is not wanted, which she had been taught as a well-trained Wynand employee. She made her usual dramatic entrance, wearing a black dress with a fresh sunflower on her shoulder, her constant ornament that had become a personal trademark. And she said to Dominique breathlessly, Mrs. Wynand, I've come here to help you deceive your husband. Then she winked at her own naughtiness and explained, our dear Mr. Wynand has been unfair to you, my dear, depriving you of your rightful fame for some reason which I just simply can't understand. But we'll fix him, you and I. What can a man do when we girls get together? He simply doesn't know what good copy you are. So just give me your story and I'll write it, and it will be so good that he just simply won't be able not to run it. Dominique was alone at home, and she smiled in a manner which Sally Brent had never seen before so the right adjectives did not occur to Sally's usually observant mind. Dominique gave her the story. She gave the exact kind of story Sally had dreamed about. Yes, of course I cook his breakfast, said Dominique. Ham and eggs is his favorite dish, just plain ham and eggs. Oh, yes, Miss Brent, I'm very happy. I open my eyes in the morning and I say to myself, it can't be true. It's not poor little me who's become the wife of the great Gail Wynand, who had all the glamorous beauties of the world to choose from. You see, I've been in love with him for years. He was just a dream to me, a beautiful, impossible dream. And now it's like a dream come true. Please, Miss Brent, take this message from me to the women of America. Patience is always rewarded, and romance is just around the corner. I think it's a beautiful thought, and perhaps it will help other girls, as it has helped me. Yes, all I want of life is to make Gail happy to share his joys and sorrows, to be a good wife and mother. Alva Scarrett read the story and liked it so much that he lost all caution. 
Run it off, Alva, Sally Brent urged him. Just have a proof run off and leave it on his desk. He'll okay it, see if he won't. That evening, Sally Brent was fired. Her costly contract was bought off. It had three more years to run, and she was told never to enter the banner building again for any purpose whatsoever. Scarrett protested in panic. Gail, you can't fire Sally. Not Sally. When I can't fire anyone I wish on my paper, I'll close it and blow up the goddamn building, said Wynand calmly. But her public will lose her public. To hell with her public. That night at dinner, Wynand took from his pocket a crumpled wad of paper, the proof cut of the story, and threw it without a word to Dominique's face across the table. It hit her cheek and fell to the floor. She picked it up, unrolled it, saw what it was, and laughed aloud. Sally Brent wrote an article on Gail Winan's love life. In a gay intellectual manner, in the terms of a sociological study, the article presented material such as no pulp magazine would have accepted. It was published in The New Frontiers. Wynand brought Dominique a necklace designed at his special order. It was made of diamonds without visible settings, spaced wide apart in an irregular pattern, like a handful scattered accidentally, held together by platinum chains made under a microscope, barely noticeable. When he clasped it about her neck, it looked like drops of water fallen at random. She stood before a mirror. She slipped her dressing gown off her shoulders and let the raindrops glitter on her skin. She said, that life story of the Bronx housewife who murdered her husband's young mistress is pretty sordid, Gail. But I think there's something dirtier. The curiosity of the people who pander to that curiosity. Actually, it was that housewife, she has piano legs and such a baggy neck in her pictures, who made this necklace possible. It's a beautiful necklace. I shall be proud to wear it. He smiled. The sudden brightness of his eyes had an odd quality of courage. That's one way of looking at it, he said. There's another. I like to think that I took the worst refuse of the human spirit, the mind of that housewife and the minds of the people who like to read about her, and I made of it this necklace on your shoulders. I like to think that I was an alchemist capable of performing so great a purification. She saw no apology, no regret, no resentment as he looked at her. It was a strange glance. She had noticed it before, a glance of simple worship. And it made her realize that there is a stage of worship which makes the worshiper himself an object of reverence. She was sitting before her mirror when he entered her dressing room on the following night. He bent down, he pressed his lips to the back of her neck, and he saw a square of paper attached to the corner of her mirror. It was the decoded copy of the cablegram that had ended her career on the banner. Fire the bitch. G.W. He lifted his shoulders to stand erect behind her. He asked, How did you get that? Ellsworth, too, he gave it to me. I thought it was worth preserving. Of course, I didn't know it would ever become so appropriate. He inclined his head gravely, acknowledging the authorship, and said nothing else. She expected to find the cablegram gone next morning but he had not touched it. She would not remove it. It remained displayed on the corner of her mirror. When he held her in his arms, she often saw his eyes move to that square of paper. She could not tell what he thought. 
In the spring, a publisher's convention took him away from New York for a week. It was their first separation. Dominique surprised him by coming to meet him at the airport when he returned. She was gay and gentle. Her manner held a promise he had never expected, could not trust, and found himself trusting completely. When he entered the drawing room of their penthouse and slumped down, half stretching on the couch, she knew that he wanted to lie still here, to feel the recaptured safety of his own world. She saw his eyes open, delivered to her, without defense. She stood straight, ready. She said, You'd better dress, Gail. We're going to the theater tonight. He lifted himself to a sitting posture. He smiled the slanting ridges standing out on his forehead. She had a cold feeling of admiration for him. The control was perfect. All but these ridges. He said, Fine. Black tie or white? White. I have tickets for no skin off your nose. They were very hard to get. It was too much. It seemed too ludicrous to be part of this moment's contest between them. He broke down by laughing, frankly, in helpless disgust. Good God, Dominique, not that one. Why, Gail, it's the biggest hit in town. Your own critic, Jules Fogler. He stopped laughing. He understood. Said it was the greatest play of our age. Ellsworth, too, he said it was the fresh voice of the coming new world. Alva Skerritt said it was not written in ink, but in the milk of human kindness. Sally Brent, before you fired her, said it made her laugh with a lump in her throat. Why, it's the godchild of the banner. I thought you would certainly want to see it. Yes, of course, he said. He got up and went to dress. No Skin Off Your Nose had been running for many months. Ellsworth Toohey had mentioned regretfully in his column that the title of the play had had to be changed slightly, as a concession to the stuffy prudery of the middle class which still controls our theater. It is a crying example of interference with the freedom of the artist. Now, don't let's hear any more of that old twaddle about ours being a free society. Originally, the title of this beautiful play was an authentic line drawn from the language of the people, with the brave, simple eloquence of folk expression. Wynant and Dominique sat in the center of the fourth row, not looking at each other, listening to the play. The things being done on the stage were merely trite and crass but the undercurrent made them frightening. There was an air about the ponderous inanities spoken, which the actors had absorbed like an infection. It was in their smirking faces, in the slyness of their voices, in their untidy gestures. It was an air of inanities uttered as revelations, and insolently demanding acceptance as such. An air, not of innocent presumption, but of conscious effrontery, as if the author knew the nature of his work, and boasted of his power to make it appear sublime in the minds of his audience, and thus destroy the capacity for the sublime within them. The work justified the verdict of its sponsors. It brought laughs. It was amusing. It was an indecent joke, acted out not on the stage, but in the audience. It was a pedestal from which a god had been torn, and in his place there stood, not Satan with a sword, but a corner lout sipping a bottle of Coca-Cola. There was silence in the audience, puzzled and humble. When someone laughed, the rest joined in with relief, glad to learn that they were enjoying themselves. Jules Fogler had not tried to influence anybody. He had merely made clear, well in advance and through many channels, 
that anyone unable to enjoy this play was basically a worthless human being. It's no use asking for explanations, he had said. Either you're fine enough to like it, or you aren't. In the intermission, Wynand heard a stout woman saying, It's wonderful. I don't understand it, but I have the feeling that it's something very important. Dominique asked him, Do you wish to go, Gail? He said, No. We'll stay to the end. He was silent in the car on their way home. When they entered their drawing-room, he stood waiting, ready to hear and accept anything. For a moment she felt the desire to spare him. She felt empty and very tired. She did not want to hurt him. She wanted to seek his help. Then she thought again what she had thought in the theatre. She thought that this play was the creation of the banner. This was what the banner had forced into life, had fed, upheld, made to triumph. And it was the banner that had begun and ended the destruction of the Stoddard Temple. The New York Banner, November 2nd, 1930. One Small Voice. Sacrilege by Ellsworth M. Toohey. The Churches of Our Childhood by Alva Scarrett. Are you happy, Mr. Superman? And now that the destruction was not an event long since past, this was not a comparison between two mutually unmeasurable entities, a building and a play. It was not an accident, nor a matter of persons, of Ike, Fogler, Tui, herself, and Rourke. It was a contest without time, a struggle of two abstractions, the thing that had created the building against the things that made the play possible. Two forces suddenly naked to her in their simple statement, two forces that had fought since the world began, and every religion had known of them, and there had always been a god and a devil. Only men had been so mistaken about the shapes of their devil. He was not single and big. He was many and smutty and small. The banner had destroyed the Stoddard Temple. In order to make room for this play, it could not do otherwise. There was no middle choice, no escape, no neutrality. It was one or the other. It had always been. And the contest had many symbols, but no name and no statement. Rourke, she heard herself screaming inside. Rourke, Rourke, Rourke. Dominique, what's the matter? She heard Wynan's voice. It was soft and anxious. He had never allowed himself to betray anxiety. She grasped the sound as a reflection of her own face, of what he had seen in her face. She stood straight and sure of herself, and very silent inside. I'm thinking of you, Gail, she said. He waited. Well, Gail? The total passion for the total height? She laughed, letting her arms swing sloppily in the manner of the actors they had seen. Say, Gail, have you got a two-cent stamp with a picture of George Washington on it? How old are you, Gail? How hard have you worked? Your life is more than half over, but you've seen your reward tonight, your crowning achievement. Of course, no man is ever quite equal to his highest passion. Now, if you strive and make a great effort, someday you'll rise to the level of that play. He stood quietly, hearing it, accepting. I think you should take a manuscript of that play and place it on a stand in the center of your gallery downstairs. I think you should rechristen your yacht and call her no skin off your nose. I think you should take me... Keep still, 
and put me in the cast, and make me play the role of Mary every evening, Mary, who adopts the homeless muskrat, and Dominique, keep still. Then talk. I want to hear you talk. I've never justified myself to anyone. Well, boast, then. That would do just as well. If you want to hear it, it made me sick, that play, as you knew it would. That was worse than the Bronx housewife. Much worse. But I can think of something worse still. Writing a great play and offering it for tonight's audience to laugh at. Letting oneself be martyred by the kind of people we saw frolicking tonight. He saw that something had reached her. He could not tell whether it was an answer of surprise or of anger. He did not know how well she recognized these words. He went on. It did make me sick. But so of a great many things which the banner has done. It was worse tonight because there was a quality about it that went beyond the usual. A special kind of malice. But if this is popular with fools, it's the banner's legitimate province. The banner was created for the benefit of fools. What else do you want me to admit? What you felt tonight. A minor kind of hell. Because you sat there with me. That's what you wanted, wasn't it? To make me feel the contrast. Still, you miscalculated. I looked at the stage and I thought, this is what people are like. Such are their spirits. But I... I found you. I have you. And the contrast was worth the pain. I did suffer tonight as you wanted. But it was a pain that went only down to a certain point. And then, shut up, she screamed. Shut up, God damn you. They stood for a moment, both astonished. He moved first. He knew she needed his help. He grasped her shoulders. She tore herself away. She walked across the room to the window. She stood looking at the city, at the great buildings spread in black and fire below her. After a while, she said, her voice toneless, I'm sorry, Gail. He did not answer. I had no right to say those things to you. She did not turn her arms raised, holding the frame of the window. We're even, Gail. I'm paid back if that will make it better for you. I broke first. I don't want you to be paid back. He spoke quietly. Dominique, what was it? Nothing. What did I make you think of? It wasn't what I said. It was something else. What did the words mean to you? Nothing. A pain that went only down to a certain point. It was that sentence. Why? She was looking at the city. In the distance, she could see the shaft of the cord building. Dominique, I've seen what you can take. It must be something very terrible if it could do that to you. I must know. There's nothing impossible. I can help you against it, whatever it is. She did not answer. At the theater, it was not just that fool play. There was something else for you tonight. I saw your face. And then it was the same thing again here. What is it? Gail, she said softly. Will you forgive me? He let a moment pass. He had not been prepared for that. What have I to forgive you? Everything. And tonight... That was your privilege, the condition on which you married me, to make me pay for the banner. I don't want to make you pay for it. Why don't you want it anymore? It can't be paid for. 
in the silence. She listened to his steps pacing the room behind her. Dominique, what was it? The pain that stops at a certain point? Nothing. Only that you had no right to say it. The men who have pay for that right, a price you can't afford. But it doesn't matter now. Say it if you wish. I have no right to say it either. That wasn't all. I think we have a great deal in common, you and I. We've committed the same treason somewhere. No, that's a bad word. Yes, I think it's the right word. It's the only one that has the feeling of what I mean. Dominique, you can't feel that. His voice sounded strange. She turned to him. Why? Because that's what I felt tonight. Treason. Toward whom? I don't know. If I were religious, I'd say God, but I'm not religious. That's what I meant, Gail. Why should you feel it? The banner is not your child. There are other forms of the same guilt. Then he walked to her across the long room. He held her in his arms. He said, You don't know the meaning of the kind of words you use. We have a great deal in common, but not that. I'd rather you went on spitting at me than trying to share my offenses. She let her hand rest against the length of his cheek, her fingertips at his temple. He asked, Will you tell me, now, what it was? Nothing. I undertook more than I could carry. You're tired, Gail. Why don't you go on upstairs? Leave me here for a little while. I just want to look at the city. Then I'll join you, and I'll be all right. Chapter 9 Dominique stood at the rail of the yacht, the deck warm under her flat sandals, the sun on her bare legs, the wind blowing her thin white dress. She looked at Wynand, stretched in a deck chair before her. She thought of the change she noticed in him again aboard ship. She had watched him through the months of their summer cruise. She had seen him once running down a companionway. The picture remained in her mind. A tall white figure thrown forward in a streak of speed and confidence. His hand grasped a railing, risking deliberately the danger of a sudden break, gaining a new propulsion. He was not the corrupt publisher of a popular empire. He was an aristocrat aboard a yacht. He looked, she thought, like what one believes aristocracy to be when one is young. A brilliant kind of gaiety without guilt. She looked at him in the deck chair. She thought that relaxation was attractive only in those for whom it was an unusual state. Then even limpness acquired purpose. She wondered about him. Gail Wynand, famous for his extraordinary capacity. But this was not merely the force of an ambitious adventurer who had created a chain of newspapers. This, the quality she saw in him here, the thing stretched out under the sun like an answer. This was greater, a first cause, a faculty out of universal dynamics. Gail she said suddenly, involuntarily. He opened his eyes to look at her. I wish I had taken a recording of that, he said lazily. You'd be startled to hear what it sounded like. Quite wasted here. I'd like to play it back in a bedroom. I'll repeat it there if you wish. Thank you, dearest. And I promise not to exaggerate or presume too much. 
You're not in love with me. You've never loved anyone. Why do you think that? If you loved a man, it wouldn't be just a matter of a circus wedding and an atrocious evening in the theater. You'd put him through total hell. How do you know that, Gail? Why have you been staring at me ever since we met? Because I'm not the Gail Winand you'd heard about. You see, I love you. And love is exception-making. If you were in love, you'd want to be broken, trampled, ordered, dominated. Because that's the impossible, the inconceivable for you in your relations with people. That would be the one gift, the great exception you'd want to offer the man you loved. But it wouldn't be easy for you. If that's true, then you, then I become gentle and humble, to your great astonishment, because I'm the worst scoundrel living. I don't believe that, Gail. No? I'm not the person before last anymore? Not anymore. Well, dearest, as a matter of fact, I am. Why do you want to think that? I don't want to, but I like to be honest. That has been my only private luxury. Don't change your mind about me. Go on seeing me as you saw me before we met. Gail, that's not what you want. It doesn't matter what I want. I don't want anything except to own you. Without answer from you. It has to be without answer. If you begin to look at me too closely, you'll see things you won't like at all. What things? You're so beautiful, Dominique. It's such a lovely accident on God's part that there's one person who matches inside and out. What things, Gail? Do you know what you're actually in love with? Integrity. The impossible. The clean, consistent, reasonable, self-faithful. The all-of-one style, like a work of art. That's the only field where it can be found, art. But you want it in the flesh. You're in love with it. Well, you see, I've never had any integrity. How sure are you of that, Gail? Have you forgotten the banner? To hell with the banner! All right, to hell with the banner. It's nice to hear you say that. But the banner's not the major symptom. That I've never practiced any sort of integrity is not so important. What's important is that I've never felt any need for it. I hate the conception of it. I hate the presumptuousness of the idea. Dwight Carson, she said. He heard the sound of disgust in her voice. He laughed. Yes, Dwight Carson, the man I bought. The individualist who's become a mob glorifier and, incidentally, a dipsomaniac. I did that. That was worse than the banner, wasn't it? You don't like to be reminded of that? No. But surely you've heard enough screaming about it. All the giants of the spirit whom I've broken. I don't think anybody ever realized how much I enjoyed doing it. It's a kind of lust. I'm perfectly indifferent to slugs like Ellsworth Toohey or my friend Alva, and quite willing to leave them in peace. But just let me see a man of a slightly higher dimension. And I've got to make a sort of Toohey out of him. I've got to. It's like a sex urge. Why? I don't know. Incidentally, you misunderstand Ellsworth Toohey. Possibly. You don't expect me to waste mental effort to untangle that snail's shell. And you contradict yourself. Where? Why didn't you set out to destroy me? The exception-making, Dominique. I love you. I had to love you. God help you if you were a man. Gail, why? Why have I done all that? Yes. Power, Dominique. The only thing I ever wanted. 
to know that there's not a man living whom I can't force to do anything, anything I choose. The man I couldn't break would destroy me. But I've spent years finding out how safe I am. They say I have no sense of honor. I've missed something in life. Well, I haven't missed very much, have I? The thing I've missed, it doesn't exist. He spoke in a normal tone of voice, but he noticed suddenly that she was listening with the intent concentration needed to hear a whisper, of which one can afford to lose no syllable. What's the matter, Dominique? What are you thinking about? I'm listening to you, Gail. She did not say she was listening to his words and to the reason behind them. It was suddenly so clear to her that she heard it as an added clause to each sentence, even though he had no knowledge of what he was confessing. The worst thing about dishonest people is what they think of as honesty, he said. I know a woman who's never held to one conviction for three days running, but when I told her she had no integrity, she got very tight-lipped and said her idea of integrity wasn't mine. It seems she'd never stolen any money. Well, she's one that's in no danger from me, whatever. I don't hate her. I hate the impossible conception you love so passionately, Dominique. Do you? I've had a lot of fun proving it. She walked to him and sat down on the deck beside his chair, the planks smooth and hot under her bare legs. He wondered why she looked at him so gently. He frowned. She knew that some reflection of what she had understood remained in her eyes, and she looked away from him. Gail, why tell me all that? It's not what you want me to think of you. No, it isn't. Why tell you now? Want the truth? Because it has to be told. Because I wanted to be honest with you. Only with you and with myself. But I wouldn't have the courage to tell you anywhere else. Not at home. Not ashore. Only here. Because it doesn't seem quite real, does it? No. I think I hoped that here you'd accept it. And still think of me as you did when you spoke my name in that way I wanted to record. She put her head against his chair. Her face pressed to his knees, her hands dropped, fingers half-curled on the glistening planks of the deck. She did not want to show what she had actually heard him saying about himself today. On a night of late fall they stood together at the roof-garden parapet, looking at the city. The long shafts made of lighted windows were like streams breaking out of the black sky, flowing down in single drops to feed the great pools of fire below. There they are, Dominique, the great buildings, the skyscrapers. Do you remember? They were the first link between us. We're both in love with them, you and I. She thought she should resent his right to say it. But she felt no resentment. Yes, Gail. I'm in love with them. She looked at the vertical threads of light that were the cord building. She raised her fingers off the parapet, just enough to touch the place of its unseen form on the distant sky. She felt no reproach from it. I'd like to see a man standing at the foot of a skyscraper. It makes him no bigger than an ant. Isn't that the correct bromide for the occasion? The goddamn fools? It's man who made it. The whole incredible mass of stone and steel, it doesn't dwarf him, it makes him greater than the structure. It reveals his true dimensions to the world. What we love about these buildings, Dominique, is the creative faculty, the heroic in man. Do you love the heroic in man, Gail? 
I love to think of it. I don't believe it. She leaned against the parapet and watched the green lights stretched in a long straight line far below. She said, I wish I could understand you. I thought I should be quite obvious. I've never hidden anything from you. He watched the electric signs that flashed in disciplined spasms over the Black River. Then he pointed to a blurred light far to the south, a faint reflection of blue. That's the banner building. See, over there, that blue light. I've done so many things, but I've missed one, the most important. There's no Winand building in New York. Someday I'll build a new home for the banner. It will be the greatest structure of the city, and it will bear my name. I started in a miserable dump, and the paper was called the Gazette. I was only a stooge for some very filthy people. But I thought then of the Winand building that would rise someday. I've thought of it all the years since. Why haven't you built it? I wasn't ready for it. Why? I'm not ready for it now. I don't know why. I know only that it's very important to me. It will be the final symbol. I'll know the right time when it comes. He turned to look out to the west, to a patch of dim scattered lights. He pointed. That's where I was born. Hell's Kitchen. She listened attentively. He seldom spoke of his beginning. I was sixteen when I stood on a roof and looked at the city, like tonight, and decided what I would be. The quality of his voice became a line underscoring the moment, saying, Take notice. This is important. Not looking at him, she thought that this was what she had waited for. This should give her the answer, the key to him. Years ago, thinking of Gail Winant, she had wondered how such a man faced his life and his work. She expected boasting and a hidden sense of shame, or impertinence flaunting its own guilt. She looked at him. His head lifted, his eyes level on the sky before him. He conveyed none of the things she had expected. He conveyed a quality incredible in this connection, a sense of gallantry. She knew it was a key, but it made the puzzle greater. Yet something within her understood, knew the use of that key, and made her speak. Gail, fire Ellsworth Tui. He turned to her, bewildered. Why? Gail, listen. Her voice had an urgency she had never shown in speaking to him. I've never wanted to stop Tui. I've even helped him. I thought he was what the world deserved. I haven't tried to save anything from him. Or anyone. I never thought it would be the banner. The banner which he fits best. That I'd want to save from him. What on earth are you talking about? Gail, when I married you, I didn't know I'd come to feel this kind of loyalty to you. It contradicts everything I've done. It contradicts so much more than I can tell you. It's a sort of catastrophe for me, a turning point. Don't ask me why. It will take me years to understand. I know only that this is what I owe you. Fire Ellsworth Tui. Get him out before it's too late. You've broken many much less vicious men and much less dangerous. Fire Tui. Go after him and don't rest until you've destroyed every last bit of him. Why? Why should you think of him just now? Because I know what he's after. What is he after? Control of the wine and papers. He laughed aloud. It was not derision or indignation. 
just pure gaiety greeting the point of a silly joke. Gail, she said helplessly. Oh, for God's sake, Dominique, and here I've always respected your judgment. You've never understood, Tui, and I don't care, Tui. Can you see me going to Ellsworth, Tui? A tank to eliminate a bedbug? Why should I fire Elsie? He's the kind that makes money for me. People love to read his twaddle. I don't fire good booby traps like that. He's as valuable to me as a piece of flypaper. That's the danger. Part of it? His wonderful following? I've had bigger and better sob sisters on my payroll. When a few of them had to be kicked out, that was the end of them. Their popularity stopped at the door of the banner. But the banner went on. It's not his popularity. It's the special nature of it. You can't fight him on his terms. You're only a tank, and that's a very clean, innocent weapon, an honest weapon that goes first out in front and mows everything down or takes every counterblow. He's a corrosive gas, the kind that eats lungs out. I think there really is a secret to the core of evil, and he has it. I don't know what it is. I know how he uses it and what he's after. Control of the wine and papers? Control of the wine and papers. As one of the means to an end. What end? Control of the world. He said with patient disgust. What is this, Dominique? What sort of gag, and what for? I'm serious, Gail. I'm terribly serious. Control of the world, my dear, belongs to men like me. The Tuies of this earth wouldn't know how to dream about it. I'll try to explain. It's very difficult. The hardest thing to explain is the glaringly evident, which everybody has decided not to see. But if you'll listen, I won't listen. You'll forgive me, but discussing the idea of Ellsworth Tui as a threat to me is ridiculous. Discussing it seriously is offensive. Gail, I... No. Darling, I don't think you really understand much about the banner, and I don't want you to. I don't want you to take any part in it. Forget it. Leave the banner to me. Is it a demand, Gail? It's an ultimatum. All right. Forget it. Don't go acquiring horror complexes about anyone as big as Ellsworth Tui. It's not like you. All right, Gail. Let's go in. It's too cold for you here without an overcoat. He chuckled softly. It was the kind of concern she had never shown for him before. He took her hand and kissed her palm, holding it against his face. For many weeks, when left alone together, they spoke little, and never about each other. But it was not a silence of resentment. It was the silence of an understanding too delicate to limit by words. They would be in a room together in the evening, saying nothing, content to feel each other's presence. They would look at each other suddenly, and both would smile, the smile like hands clasped. Then one evening, she knew he would speak. She sat at her dressing table. He came in and leaned against the wall beside her. He looked at her hands, at her naked shoulders. But she felt as if he did not see her. He was looking at something greater than the beauty of her body, greater than his love for her. He was looking at himself, and this, she knew, was the one incomparable tribute. I breathe for my own necessity, for the fuel of my body, for my survival. I've given you not my sacrifice or my pity but my ego and my naked need. She heard Rourke's words, Rourke's voice speaking for Gail Wynand. 
and she felt no sense of treason to Rourke in using the words of his love for the love of another man. Gail, she said gently, someday I'll have to ask your forgiveness for having married you. He shook his head slowly, smiling. She said, I wanted you to be my chain to the world. You've become my defense instead, and that makes my marriage dishonest. No, I told you I would accept any reason you chose. But you've changed everything for me. Or was it I that changed it? I don't know. We've done something strange to each other. I've given you what I wanted to lose. That special sense of living I thought this marriage would destroy for me. The sense of life as exultation. And you, you've done all the things I would have done. Do you know how much alike we are? I knew that from the first. But it should have been impossible. Gail, I want to remain with you now. For another reason. To wait for an answer. I think when I learn to understand what you are, I'll understand myself. There is an answer. There is a name for the thing we have in common. I don't know it. I know it's very important. Probably. I suppose I should want to understand it, but I don't. I can't care about anything now. I can't even be afraid. She looked up at him and said very calmly, I am afraid, Gail. Of what, dearest? Of what I'm doing to you. Why? I don't love you, Gail. I can't care even about that. She dropped her head, and he looked down at the hair that was like a pale helmet of polished metal. Dominique. She raised her face to him obediently. I love you, Dominique. I love you so much that nothing can matter to me. Not even you. Can you understand that? Only my love. Not your answer. Not even your indifference. I've never taken much from the world. I haven't wanted much. I've never really wanted anything. Not in the total, undivided way. Not with the kind of desire that becomes an ultimatum, yes or no, and one can't accept the no without ceasing to exist. That's what you are to me. But when one reaches that stage, it's not the object that matters, it's the desire. Not you, but I. The ability to desire like that. Nothing less is worth feeling or honoring. And I've never felt that before, Dominique. I've never known how to say mine about anything. Not in the sense I say it about you. Mine. Did you call it a sense of life as exaltation? You said that. You understand. I can't be afraid. I love you, Dominique. I love you. You're letting me say it now. I love you. She reached over and took the cablegram off the mirror. She crumpled it, her fingers twisting slowly in a grinding motion against her palm. He stood listening to the crackle of the paper. She leaned forward, opened her hand over the wastebasket, and let the paper drop. Her hand remained still for a moment, the fingers extended, slanting down, as they had opened. Part 4 Howard Rourke Chapter 1 The leaves streamed down, trembling in the sun. They were not green. Only a few scattered through the torrent stood out in single drops of a green so bright and pure that it hurt the eyes. The rest were not a color, but a light, the substance of fire on metal, living sparks without edges. 
and it looked as if the forest were a spread of light boiling slowly to produce this color, this green rising in small bubbles, the condensed essence of spring. The trees met, bending over the road, and the spots of sun on the ground moved with the shifting of the branches like a conscious caress. The young man hoped he would not have to die. Not if the earth could look like this, he thought. Not if he could hear the hope and the promise, like a voice, with leaves, tree trunks, and rocks, instead of words. But he knew that the earth looked like this only because he had seen no sign of men for hours. He was alone riding his bicycle down a forgotten trail through the hills of Pennsylvania where he had never been before, where he could feel the fresh wonder of an untouched world. He was a very young man. He had just graduated from college in the spring of the year 1935, and he wanted to decide whether life was worth living. He did not know that this was the question in his mind. He did not think of dying. He thought only that he wished to find joy and reason and meaning in life, and that none had been offered to him anywhere. He had not liked the things taught to him in college. He had been taught a great deal about social responsibility, about a life of service and self-sacrifice. Everybody had said it was beautiful and inspiring. Only he had not felt inspired. He had felt nothing at all. He could not name the thing he wanted of life. He felt it here, in this wild loneliness. But he did not face nature with the joy of a healthy animal, as a proper and final setting. He faced it with the joy of a healthy man, as a challenge, as tools, means, and material. So he felt anger that he should find exaltation only in the wilderness, that this great sense of hope had to be lost when he would return to men and men's work. He thought that this was not right, that man's work should be a higher step, an improvement on nature, not a degradation. He did not want to despise men. He wanted to love and admire them. But he dreaded the sight of the first house, pool room, and movie poster he would encounter on his way. He had always wanted to write music and he could give no other identity to the thing he sought. If you want to know what it is, he told himself, listen to the first phrases of Tchaikovsky's first concerto, or the last movement of Rachmaninoff's second. Men have not found the words for it, nor the deed, nor the thought, but they have found the music. Let me see that in one single act of man on earth. Let me see it made real. Let me see the answer to the promise of that music. Not servants, nor those served, not altars and immolations, but the final, the fulfilled, innocent of pain. Don't help me or serve me, but let me see it once, because I need it. Don't work for my happiness, my brothers. Show me yours. Show me that it is possible. Show me your achievement, and the knowledge will give me courage for mine. He saw a blue hole ahead, where the road ended on the crest of a ridge. The blue looked cool and clean, like a film of water stretched in the frame of green branches. It would be funny, he thought, if I came to the edge and found nothing but that blue beyond, nothing but the sky, ahead, above, and below. He closed his eyes and went on, suspending the possible for a moment, granting himself a dream, a few instants of believing that he would reach the crest, open his eyes, and see the blue radiance of the sky below. His foot touched the ground, breaking his motion. He stopped and opened his eyes. He stood still. In the broad valley far below him in the first sunlight of early morning, he saw a town. Only it was not a town. Towns did not look like that. 
he had to suspend the possible for a while longer, to seek no questions or explanations, only to look. There were small houses on the ledges of the hill before him, flowing down to the bottom. He knew that the ledges had not been touched, that no artifice had altered the unplanned beauty of the graded steps. Yet some power had known how to build on these ledges in such a way that the houses became inevitable, and one could no longer imagine the hills as beautiful without them, as if the centuries and the series of chances that produced these ledges in the struggle of great blind forces had waited for their final expression, had been only a road to a goal. And the goal was these buildings, part of the hills, shaped by the hills, yet ruling them by giving them meaning. The houses were of plain field stone, like the rocks jutting from the green hillsides, and of glass, great sheets of glass, used as if the sun were invited to complete the structures, sunlight becoming part of the masonry. There were many houses. They were small, they were cut off from one another, and no two of them were alike. But they were like variations on a single theme, like a symphony played by an inexhaustible imagination, and one could still hear the laughter of the force that had been let loose on them, as if that force had run unrestrained, challenging itself to be spent, but had never reached its end. Music, he thought, the promise of the music he had invoked, the sense of it made real. There it was before his eyes. He did not see it, he heard it in chords. He thought that there was a common language of thought, sight, and sound. Was it mathematics? The discipline of reason. Music was mathematics, and architecture was music in stone. He knew he was dizzy because this place below him could not be real. He saw trees, lawns, walks twisting up the hillsides, steps cut in the stone. He saw fountains, swimming pools, tennis courts, and not a sign of life. The place was uninhabited. It did not shock him, not as the sight of it had shocked him. In a way it seemed proper. This was not part of known existence. For the moment he had no desire to know what it was. After a long time he glanced about him, and then he saw that he was not alone. Some steps away from him a man sat on a boulder looking down at the valley. The man seemed absorbed in the sight and did not hurt his approach. The man was tall and gaunt and had orange hair. He walked straight to the man, who turned his eyes to him. The eyes were gray and calm. The boy knew suddenly that they felt the same thing, and he could speak as he would not speak to a stranger anywhere else. That isn't real, is it? the boy asked, pointing down. Why, yes, it is, now, the man answered. It's not a movie set or a trick of some kind? No. It's a summer resort. It's just been completed. It will be opened in a few weeks. Who built it? I did. What's your name? Howard Rourke. Thank you, said the boy. He knew that the steady eyes looking at him understood everything those two words had to cover. Howard Rourke inclined his head in acknowledgment. Wheeling his bicycle by his side, the boy took the narrow path down the slope of the hill to the valley and the houses below. Rourke looked after him. He had never seen the boy before, and he would never see him again. He did not know that he had given someone the courage to face a lifetime. 
Rourke had never understood why he was chosen to build the summer resort at Monadnock Valley. It had happened a year and a half ago in the fall of 1933. He had heard of the project and gone to see Mr. Caleb Bradley, the head of some vast company that had purchased the valley and was doing a great deal of loud promotion. He went to see Bradley as a matter of duty, without hope, merely to add another refusal to his long list of refusals. He had built nothing in New York since the Stoddard Temple. When he entered Bradley's office, he knew that he must forget Monadnock Valley, because this man would never give it to him. Caleb Bradley was a short, pudgy person with a handsome face between rounded shoulders. The face looked wise and boyish, unpleasantly ageless. It could have been fifty or twenty. He had blank blue eyes, sly and bored. But it was difficult for Rourke to forget Monadnock Valley. So he spoke of it, forgetting that speech was useless here. Mr. Bradley listened, obviously interested, but obviously not in what Rourke was saying. Rourke could almost feel some third entity present in the room. Mr. Bradley said little beyond promising to consider it and to get in touch with him. But then he said a strange thing. He asked, in a voice devoid of all clue to the purpose of the question, neither in approval nor scorn, You're the architect who built the Stoddard Temple, aren't you, Mr. Rourke? Yes, said Rourke. Funny that I hadn't thought of you myself, said Mr. Bradley. Rourke went away thinking that it would have been funny if Mr. Bradley had thought of him. Three days later, Bradley telephoned and invited him to his office. Rourke came and met four other men, the board of the Monadnock Valley Company. They were well-dressed men, and their faces were as closed as Mr. Bradley's. Please tell these gentlemen what you told me, Mr. Rourke, Bradley said pleasantly. Rourke explained his plan. If what they wished to build was an unusual summer resort for people of moderate incomes, as they had announced, then they should realize that the worst curse of poverty was the lack of privacy. Only the very rich or the very poor of the city could enjoy their summer vacations. The very rich because they had private estates, the very poor because they did not mind the feel and smell of one another's flesh on public beaches and public dance floors. The people of good taste and small income had no place to go if they found no rest or pleasure in herds. Why was it assumed that poverty gave one the instincts of cattle? Why not offer these people a place where, for a week or a month, at small cost, they could have what they wanted and needed? He had seen Monadnock Valley. It could be done. Don't touch those hillsides. Don't blast and level them down. Not one huge ant pile of a hotel, but small houses hidden from one another, each a private estate where people could meet or not as they pleased. Not one fish market tank of a swimming pool, but many private swimming pools, as many as the company wished to afford. He could show them how it could be done cheaply. Not one stock farm corral of tennis courts for exhibitionists, but many private tennis courts. Not a place where one went to meet refined company and land a husband in two weeks, but a resort for people who enjoyed their own presence well enough and sought only a place where they would be left free to enjoy it. The men listened to him silently. He saw them exchanging glances once in a while. He felt certain that they were the kind of glances people exchange when they cannot laugh at the speaker aloud. But it could not have been that, because he signed a contract to build the Monadnock Valley Summer Resort two days later. He demanded Mr. Bradley's initials on every drawing that came out of his drafting room. He remembered the Stoddard Temple. Mr. Bradley initialed, signed, okayed. He agreed to everything. He approved everything. 
he seemed delighted to let Rourke have his way. But this eager complacence had a peculiar undertone, as if Mr. Bradley were humoring a child. He could learn little about Mr. Bradley. It was said that the man had made a fortune in real estate in the Florida boom. His present company seemed to command unlimited funds, and the names of many wealthy backers were mentioned to shareholders. Rourke never met them. The four gentlemen of the board did not appear again, except on short visits to the construction site where they exhibited little interest. Mr. Bradley was in full charge of everything. But beyond a close watch over the budget, he seemed to like nothing better than to leave Rourke in full charge. In the eighteen months that followed, Rourke had no time to wonder about Mr. Bradley. Rourke was building his greatest assignment. For the last year he lived at the construction site, in a shanty hastily thrown together on a bare hillside, a wooden enclosure with a bed, a stove, and a large table. His old draftsmen came to work for him again, some abandoning better jobs in the city to live in shacks and tents, to work in naked plank barracks that served his architect's office. There was so much to build that none of them thought of wasting structural effort on their own shelters. They did not realize until much later that they had lacked comforts, and then they did not believe it, because the year at Monadnock Valley remained in their minds as the strange time, when the earth stopped turning and they lived through twelve months of spring. They did not think of the snow, the frozen clots of earth, wind whistling through the cracks of planking, thin blankets over army cots, stiff fingers stretched over cold stoves in the morning before a pencil could be held steadily. They remembered only the feeling which is the meaning of spring. One's answer to the first blades of grass, the first buds on tree branches, the first blue of the sky. The singing answer, not to grass, trees, and sky, but to the great sense of beginning, of triumphant progression, of certainty in an achievement that nothing will stop. Not from leaves and flowers, but from wooden scaffoldings, from steam shovels, from blocks of stone and sheets of glass rising out of the earth, they received the sense of youth, motion, purpose, fulfillment. They were an army, and it was a crusade, but none of them thought of it in these words, except Stephen Mallory. Stephen Mallory did the fountains and all the sculpture work of Monadnock Valley, but he came to live at the site long before he was needed. Battle, thought Stephen Mallory, is a vicious concept. There is no glory in war, and no beauty in crusades of men. But this was a battle, this was an army and a war, and the highest experience in the life of every man who took part in it. Why? Where was the root of the difference, and the law to explain it? He did not speak of it to anyone, but he saw the same feeling in Mike's face, when Mike arrived with the gang of electricians. Mike said nothing, but he winked at Mallory in cheerful understanding. I told you not to worry, Mike said to him once, without preamble. At the trial, that was. He can't lose. Quarries are no quarries, trials are no trials. They can't beat him, Steve. They just can't. Not the whole goddamn world. But they had really forgotten the world, thought Mallory. This was a new earth, their own. The hills rose to the sky around them, as a wall of protection. And they had another protection, the architect who walked among them, down the snow or the grass of the hillsides, over the boulders and the piled planks, to the drafting tables, to the derricks, to the tops of rising walls, the man who had made this possible, the thoughts in the mind of that man, and not the content of that thought, not the result, not the vision that had created Monadnock Valley, 
nor the will that had made it real. But the method of his thought, the rule of its function, the method and rule, which were not like those of the world beyond the hills, that stood on guard over the valley and over the crusaders within it. And then he saw Mr. Bradley come to visit the site, to smile blandly and depart again. Then Mallory felt anger without reason and fear. Howard, Mallory said one night when they sat together at a fire of dry branches on the hillside over the camp. It's the Stoddard Temple again. Yes, said Rourke. I think so. But I can't figure out in just what way or what they're after. He rolled over on his stomach and looked down at the panes of glass scattered through the darkness below. They caught reflections from somewhere and looked like phosphorescent, self-generated springs of light rising out of the ground. He said, It doesn't matter, Steve, does it? Not what they do about it, nor who comes to live here. Only that we've made it. Would you have missed this no matter what price they make you pay for it afterward? No, said Mallory. Rourke had wanted to rent one of the houses for himself and spend the summer there, the first summer of Monadnock Valley's existence. But before the resort was open, he received a wire from New York. I told you I would, didn't I? It took five years to get rid of my friends and brothers, but the Aquitania is now mine. And yours. Come to finish it. Kent Lansing. So he went back to New York to see the rubble and cement dust cleared away from the hulk of the unfinished symphony, to see derricks swing girders high over Central Park, to see the gaps of windows filled, the broad decks spread over the roofs of the city, the Aquitania Hotel completed, glowing at night in the park's skyline. He had been very busy in the last two years. Monadnock Valley had not been his only commission. From different states, from unexpected parts of the country, calls had come for him private homes, small office buildings, modest shops. He had built them, snatching a few hours of sleep on trains and planes that carried him from Monadnock Valley to distant small towns. The story of every commission he received was the same. I was in New York, and I liked the Enright House. I saw the Cord Building. I saw a picture of that temple they tore down. It was as if an underground stream flowed through the country and broke out in sudden springs that shot to the surface at random, in unpredictable places. They were small, inexpensive jobs, but he was kept working. That summer, with Monadnock Valley completed, he had no time to worry about its future fate, but Stephen Mallory worried about it. Why don't they advertise it, Howard? Why the sudden silence? Have you noticed? There was so much talk about their grand project. So many little items in print, before they started. There was less and less while we were doing it, and now? Mr. Bradley and company have gone deaf-mute. Now? When you'd expect them to stage a press agent's orgy? Why? I wouldn't know, said Rourke. I'm an architect, not a rental agent. Why should you worry? We've done our job. Let them do theirs in their own way. It's a damn queer way. Did you see their ads? The few they've let dribble out. They say all the things you told them about rest, peace, and privacy, but how they say it. Do you know what those ads amount to, in effect? Come to Monadnock Valley and be bored to death. It sounds... It actually sounds as if they were trying to keep people away. I don't read ads, Steve. 
But within a month of its opening, every house in Monadnock Valley was rented. The people who came were a strange mixture. Society men and women who could have afforded more fashionable resorts. Young writers and unknown artists, engineers and newspapermen and factory workers. Suddenly, spontaneously, people were talking about Monadnock Valley. There was a need for that kind of a resort, a need no one had tried to satisfy. The place became news, but it was private news. The papers had not discovered it. Mr. Bradley had no press agents. Mr. Bradley and his company had vanished from public life. One magazine, unsolicited, printed four pages of photographs of Monadnock Valley and sent a man to interview Howard Rourke. By the end of summer, the homes were leased in advance for the following year. In October, early one morning, the door of Rourke's reception room flew open and Stephen Mallory rushed in, making straight for Rourke's office. The secretary tried to stop him. Rourke was working and no interruptions were allowed. But Mallory shoved her aside and tore into the office, slamming the door behind. She noticed that he held a newspaper in his hand. Rourke glanced up at him from the drafting table and dropped his pencil. He knew that this was the way Mallory's face had looked when he shot at Ellsworth Toohey. Will Howard, do you want to know why you got Monadnock Valley? He threw the newspaper down on the table. Rourke saw the heading of a story on the third page. Caleb Bradley arrested. It's all there, said Mallory. Don't read it. It will make you sick. All right, Steve, what is it? They sold 200% of it. Who did? Of what? Bradley and his gang. Of Monadnock Valley. Mallory spoke with a forced, vicious, self-torturing precision. They thought it was worthless from the first. They got the land practically for nothing. They thought it was no place for a resort at all, out of the way with no bus lines or movie theaters around. They thought the time wasn't right and the public wouldn't go for it. They made a lot of noise and sold shares to a lot of wealthy suckers. It was just a huge fraud. They sold 200% of the place. They got twice what it cost them to build it. They were certain it would fail. They wanted it to fail. They expected no profits to distribute. They had a nice scheme ready for how to get out of it when the place went bankrupt. They were prepared for anything, except for seeing it turn into the kind of success it is. And they couldn't go on, because now they'd have to pay their backers twice the amount the place earned each year, and it's earning plenty. And they thought they had arranged for certain failure. Howard, don't you understand? They chose you as the worst architect they could find. Rourke threw his head back and laughed. God damn you, Howard, it's not funny. Sit down, Steve, stop shaking. You look as if you'd just seen a whole field of butchered bodies. I have. I've seen worse, I've seen the root. I've seen what makes such fields possible. What do the damn fools think of as horror? Wars, murders, fires, earthquakes, to hell with that. This is horror, that story in the paper. That's what men should dread and fight and scream and call the worst shame on their record. Howard, I'm thinking of all the explanations of evil and all the remedies offered for it through the centuries. None of them worked. None of them explained or cured anything. But the root of evil, my drooling beast, it's there, Howard, in that story. In that. And in the souls of the smug bastards who read it and say, Oh, well, genius must always struggle. It's good for him. And then go and look for some village idiot to help, to teach him how to weave baskets. That's the drooling beast in action. Howard, think of Monadnock. Close your eyes and see it. And then think that the men who ordered it believed it was the worst thing they could build. Howard, there's something wrong, something very terribly wrong in the world if you were given your greatest job as a filthy joke. When will you stop thinking about that? 
about the world and me. When will you learn to forget it? When will Dominique... He stopped. They had not mentioned that name in each other's presence for five years. He saw Mallory's eyes, intent and shocked. Mallory realized that his words had hurt Rourke, hurt him enough to force this admission. But Rourke turned to him and said deliberately, Dominique used to think just as you do. Mallory had never spoken of what he guessed about Rourke's past. Their silence had always implied that Mallory understood, that Rourke knew it, and that it was not to be discussed. But now Mallory asked, Are you still waiting for her to come back? Mrs. Gale Wynand, God damn her! Rourke said without emphasis, Shut up, Steve. Mallory whispered, I'm sorry. Rourke walked to his table and said, his voice normal again, Go home, Steve, and forget about Bradley. They'll all be suing one another now, but we won't be dragged in, and they won't destroy Manadnock. Forget it and get out. I have to work. He brushed the newspaper off the table with his elbow and bent over the sheets of drafting paper. There was a scandal over the revelations of the financing methods behind Manadnock Valley. There was a trial, a few gentlemen sentenced to the penitentiary, and a new management taking Manadnock over for the shareholders. Rourke was not involved. He was busy, and he forgot to read the accounts of the trial in the papers. Mr. Bradley admitted, in apology to his partners, that he would be damned if he could have expected a resort built on a crazy, unsociable plan ever to become successful. I did all I could. I chose the worst fool I could find. Then Austin Heller wrote an article about Howard Rourke and Monadnock Valley. He spoke of all the buildings Rourke had designed, and he put into words the things Rourke had said in architecture. Only they were not Austin Heller's usual quiet words, they were a ferocious cry of admiration and of anger. And may we be damned if greatness must reach us through fraud. The article started a violent controversy in art circles. Howard, Mallory said one day, some months later, you're famous. Yes, said Rourke. I suppose so. Three-quarters of them don't know what it's all about, but they've heard the other one-quarter fighting over your name, and so now they feel they must pronounce it with respect. Of the fighting quarter, four-tenths are those who hate you, three-tenths are those who feel they must express an opinion in any controversy, two-tenths are those who play safe and herald any discovery, and one-tenth are those who understand. But they've all found out suddenly that there is a Howard Rourke, and that he's an architect. The AGA Bulletin refers to you as a great but unruly talent and the Museum of the Future has hung up photographs of Monadnock, the Enright House, the Cord Building, and the Aquitania, under beautiful glass, next to the room where they've got Gordon L. Prescott. And still, I'm glad. Kent Lansing said one evening, Heller did a grand job. Do you remember, Howard, what I told you once about the psychology of a pretzel? Don't despise the middleman. He's necessary. Someone had to tell them. It takes two to make every great career, the man who is great and the man, almost rarer, who is great enough to see greatness and say so. Ellsworth Toohey wrote, The paradox in all this preposterous noise 
is the fact that Mr. Caleb Bradley is the victim of a grave injustice. His ethics are open to censure, but his aesthetics were unimpeachable. He exhibited sounder judgment in matters of architectural merit than Mr. Austin Heller, the outmoded reactionary who was suddenly turned art critic. Mr. Caleb Bradley was martyred by the bad taste of his tenants. In the opinion of this column, his sentence should have been commuted in recognition of his artistic discrimination. Monadnock Valley is a fraud, but not merely a financial one. There was little response to Rourke's fame among the solid gentlemen of wealth who were the steadiest source of architectural commissions. The men who had said, Rourke, never heard of him, now said, Rourke, he's too sensational. But there were men who were impressed by the simple fact that Rourke had built a place which made money for owners who didn't want to make money. This was more convincing than abstract artistic discussions. And there was the one-tenth who understood. In the year after Monadnock Valley, Rourke built two private homes in Connecticut, a movie theater in Chicago, a hotel in Philadelphia. In the spring of 1936, a western city completed plans for a World's Fair to be held next year, an international exposition to be known as the March of the Centuries. The Committee of Distinguished Civic Leaders in charge of the project chose a council of the country's best architects to design the fair. The civic leaders wished to be conspicuously progressive. Howard Rourke was one of the eight architects chosen. When he received the invitation, Rourke appeared before the committee and explained that he would be glad to design the fair alone. But you can't be serious, Mr. Rourke, the chairman declared. After all, with a stupendous undertaking of this nature, we want the best that can be had. I mean, two heads are better than one, you know, and eight heads... Why, you can see for yourself the best talents of the country, the brightest names. You know, friendly consultation, cooperation, and collaboration. You know what makes great achievements? I do. Then you realize, if you want me, you'll have to let me do it all alone. I don't work with councils. You wish to reject an opportunity like this, a spot in history, a chance of world fame, practically a chance of immortality. I don't work with collectives. I don't consult, I don't cooperate, I don't collaborate. There was a great deal of angry comment on Rourke's refusal in architectural circles. People said, the conceited bastard. The indignation was too sharp and raw for a mere piece of professional gossip. Each man took it as a personal insult. Each felt himself qualified to alter, advise, and improve the work of any man living. The incident illustrates to perfection, wrote Ellsworth Toohey, the antisocial nature of Mr. Howard Rourke's egotism, the arrogance of the unbridled individualism which he has always personified. Among the eight chosen to design the March of the Centuries were Peter Keating, Gordon L. Prescott, Ralston Holcomb. I won't work with Howard Rourke, said Peter Keating when he saw the list of the council. You'll have to choose. It's he or I. He was informed that Mr. Rourke had declined. Keating assumed leadership over the council. The press stories about the progress of the fair's construction referred to Peter Keating and his associates. Keating had acquired a sharp, intractable manner in the last few years. He snapped orders and lost his patience before the smallest difficulty. When he lost his patience, he screamed at people. He had a vocabulary of insults that carried a caustic, insidious, almost feminine malice. His face was sullen. 
In the fall of 1936, Rourke moved his office to the top floor of the Cord building. He had thought when he designed that building that it would be the place of his office someday. When he saw the inscription, Howard Rourke, architect, on his new door, he stopped for a moment. Then he walked into the office. His own room at the end of a long suite had three walls of glass high over the city. He stopped in the middle of the room. Through the broad panes he could see the Fargo store, the Enright House, the Aquitania Hotel. He walked to the windows facing south and stood there for a long time. At the tip of Manhattan, far in the distance, he could see the Dana Building by Henry Cameron. On an afternoon of November, returning to his office after a visit to the site of a house under construction on Long Island, Rourke entered the reception room, shaking his drenched raincoat, and saw a look of suppressed excitement on the face of his secretary. She had been waiting impatiently for his return. Mr. Rourke, this is probably something very big, she said. I made an appointment for you for three o'clock tomorrow afternoon at his office. Whose office? He telephoned half an hour ago. Mr. Gale Wynand. This book is continued on Disc 3. The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand continued. Disc 3. Chapter 2. A sign hung over the entrance door, a reproduction of the paper's masthead. The New York Banner. The sign was small, a statement of fame and power that needed no emphasis. It was like a fine, mocking smile that justified the building's bare ugliness. The building was a factory, scornful of all ornaments save the implications of that masthead. The entrance lobby looked like the mouth of a furnace. Elevators drew a stream of human fuel and spat it out. The men did not hurry, but they moved with subdued haste, the propulsion of purpose. Nobody loitered in that lobby. The elevator doors clicked like valves, a pulsating rhythm in their sound. Drops of red and green light flashed on a wallboard, signaling the progress of cars high in space. It looked as if everything in that building were run by such control boards in the hands of an authority aware of every motion, as if the building were flowing with channeled energy, functioning smoothly, soundlessly, a magnificent machine that nothing could destroy. Nobody paid any attention to the red-headed man who stopped in the lobby for a moment. Howard Rourke looked up at the tiled vault. He had never hated anyone. Somewhere in this building was its owner, the man who had made him feel his nearest approach to hatred. Gail Wynand glanced at the small clock on his desk. In a few minutes he had an appointment with an architect. The interview, he thought, would not be difficult. He had held many such interviews in his life. He merely had to speak. He knew what he wanted to say and nothing was required of the architect except a few sounds signifying understanding. His glance went from the clock back to the sheets of proofs on his desk. He read an editorial by Alva Scarrett on the public feeding of squirrels in Central Park, and a column by Ellsworth Toohey on the great merits of an exhibition of paintings done by the workers of the city's Department of Sanitation. A buzzer rang on his desk, and his secretary's voice said, Mr. Howard Rourke, Mr. Wynand. Okay said Wynand, flicking the switch off. As his hand moved back, he noticed the row of buttons at the edge of his desk, bright little knobs with a color code of their own, each representing the end of a wire that stretched to some part of the building, each wire controlling some man. 
each man controlling many men under his orders, each group of men contributing to the final shape of words on paper to go into millions of homes, into millions of human brains. These little knobs of colored plastic there under his fingers. But he had no time to let the thought amuse him. The door of his office was opening. He moved his hand away from the buttons. Wynand was not certain that he missed a moment, that he did not rise at once as courtesy demanded, but remained seated looking at the man who entered. Perhaps he had risen immediately, and it only seemed to him that a long time preceded his movement. Rourke was not certain that he stopped when he entered the office, that he did not walk forward, but stood looking at the man behind the desk. Perhaps there had been no break in his steps, and it only seemed to him that he had stopped. But there had been a moment when both forgot the terms of immediate reality, when Wynand forgot his purpose in summoning this man, when Rourke forgot that this man was Dominique's husband, when no door, desk, or stretch of carpet existed, only the total awareness for each of the man before him, only two thoughts meeting in the middle of the room. This is Gail Wynand. This is Howard Rourke. Then Wynand rose, his hand motioned in simple invitation to the chair beside his desk. Rourke approached and sat down, and they did not notice that they had not greeted each other. Wynand smiled and said what he had never intended to say. He said very simply, I don't think you'll want to work for me. I want to work for you, said Rourke, who had come here prepared to refuse. Have you seen the kinds of things I've built? Yes. Wynand smiled. This is different. It's not for my public. It's for me. You've never built anything for yourself before? No. If one doesn't count the cage I have up on a roof and this old printing factory here. Can you tell me why I've never built a structure of my own with the means of erecting a city if I wished? I don't know. I think you'd know. He forgot that he did not allow men he hired the presumption of personal speculation upon him. Because you've been unhappy, said Rourke. He said it simply, without insolence, as if nothing but total honesty were possible to him here. This was not the beginning of an interview, but the middle. It was like a continuation of something begun long ago. Wynand said, Make that clear. I think you understand. I want to hear you explain it. Most people build as they live, as a matter of routine and senseless accident, but a few understand that building is a great symbol. We live in our minds, and existence is the attempt to bring that life into physical reality, to state it in gesture and form. For the man who understands this, a house he owns is a statement of his life. If he doesn't build when he has the means, it's because his life has not been what he wanted. You don't think it's preposterous to say that to me, of all people? No. I don't either. Rourke smiled. But you and I are the only two who'd say it, either part of it, that I didn't have what I wanted, or that I could be included among the few expected to understand any sort of great symbols. You don't want to retract that either? No. How old are you? Thirty-six. I owned most of the papers I have now, when I was thirty-six. He added, I didn't mean that as any kind of a personal remark. I don't know why I said that. I just happened to think of it. What do you wish me to build for you? 
my home. Wynand felt that the two words had some impact on Rourke, apart from any normal meaning they could convey. He sensed it without reason. He wanted to ask, what's the matter, but couldn't, since Rourke had really shown nothing. You were right in your diagnosis, said Wynand. Because, you see, now I do want to build a house of my own. Now I'm not afraid of a visible shape for my life. If you want it said directly, as you did, now I'm happy. What kind of a house? In the country. I've purchased the site, an estate in Connecticut, 500 acres. What kind of a house? You'll decide that. Did Mrs. Wynand choose me for the job? No, Mrs. Wynand knows nothing about this. It was I who wanted to move out of the city, and she agreed. I did ask her to select the architect. My wife is the former Dominique Francon. She was once a writer on architecture. But she preferred to leave the choice to me. You want to know why I picked you? I took a long time to decide. I felt rather lost at first. I had never heard of you. I didn't know any architects at all. I mean this literally. And I'm not forgetting the years I've spent in real estate, the things I've built, and the imbeciles who built them for me. This is not a stone ridge. This is... what did you call it? A statement of my life? Then I saw Monadnock. It was the first thing that made me remember your name. But I gave myself a long test. I went around the country looking at homes, hotels, all sorts of buildings. Every time I saw one I liked and asked who had designed it, the answer was always the same. Howard Rourke. So I called you. He added, Shall I tell you how much I admire your work? Thank you, said Rourke. He closed his eyes for an instant. You know, I didn't want to meet you. Why? Have you heard about my art gallery? Yes. I never meet the men whose work I love. The work means too much to me. I don't want the men to spoil it. They usually do. They're an anticlimax to their own talent. You're not. I don't mind talking to you. I told you this only because I want you to know that I respect very little in life, but I respect the things in my gallery and your buildings, and man's capacity to produce work like that. Maybe it's the only religion I've ever had. He shrugged. I think I've destroyed, perverted, corrupted just about everything that exists. But I've never touched that. Why are you looking at me like this? I'm sorry. Please tell me about the house you want. I want it to be a palace. Only I don't think palaces are very luxurious. They're so big, so promiscuously public. A small house is the true luxury. A residence for two people only. For my wife and me. It won't be necessary to allow for a family. We don't intend to have children. Nor for visitors. We don't intend to entertain. One guest room, in case we should need it, but not more than that. Living room, dining room, library, two studies, one bedroom. Servants' quarters, garage. That's the general idea. I'll give you the details later. The cost, whatever you need. The appearance? He smiled, shrugging. I've seen your buildings. The man who wants to tell you what a house should look like must either be able to design it better or shut up. I'll say only that I want my house to have the Rourke quality. What is that? I think you understand. I want to hear you explain it. I think some buildings are cheap show-offs. 
all front. And some are cowards apologizing for themselves in every brick. And some are the eternal, unfit, botched, malicious, and false. Your buildings have one sense above all, a sense of joy. Not a placid joy, a difficult, demanding kind of joy. The kind that makes one feel as if it were an achievement to experience it. One looks and thinks, I'm a better person if I can feel that. Rourke said slowly, not in the tone of an answer. I suppose it was inevitable. What? That you would see that. Why do you say it as if you regretted my being able to see it? I don't regret it. Listen, don't hold it against me. The things I've built before. I don't. It's all the stone ridges and noise Belmont hotels and wine and papers that made it possible for me to have a house by you. Isn't that a luxury worth achieving? Does it matter how? They were the means. You're the end. You don't have to justify yourself to me. I wasn't just... Yes. I think that's what I was doing. You don't need to. I wasn't thinking of what you've built. What were you thinking? That I'm helpless against anyone who sees what you saw in my buildings. You felt you wanted help against me? No. Only I don't feel helpless as a rule. I'm not prompted to justify myself as a rule either. Then it's all right, isn't it? Yes. I must tell you much more about the house I want. I suppose an architect is like a father confessor. He must know everything about the people who are to live in his house, since what he gives them is more personal than their clothes or food. Please consider it in that spirit. And forgive me if you notice that this is difficult for me to say. I've never gone to confession. You see, I want this house because I'm very desperately in love with my wife. What's the matter? Do you think it's an irrelevant statement? No. Go on. I can't stand to see my wife among other people. It's not jealousy. It's much more and much worse. I can't stand to see her walking down the streets of a city. I can't share her. Not even with shops, theaters, taxicabs, or sidewalks. I must take her away. I must put her out of reach where nothing can touch her, not in any sense. This house is to be a fortress. My architect is to be my guard. Rourke sat looking straight at him. He had to keep his eyes on Wynand in order to be able to listen. Wynand felt the effort in that glance. He did not recognize it as effort, only as strength. He felt himself supported by the glance. He found that nothing was hard to confess. This house is to be a prison. No, not quite that. A treasury. A vault to guard things too precious for sight. But it must be more. It must be a separate world, so beautiful that we'll never miss the one we left. A prison only by the power of its own perfection. Not bars and ramparts, but your talent standing as a wall between us and the world. That's what I want of you. And more. Have you ever built a temple? For a moment, Rourke had no strength to answer. But he saw that the question was genuine. Wynand didn't know. Yes, said Rourke. 
then think of this commission as you would think of a temple. A temple to Dominique Winant. I want you to meet her before you design it. I met Mrs. Winant some years ago. You have. Then you understand. I do. Wynand saw Rourke's hand lying on the edge of his desk, the long fingers pressed to the glass next to the proofs of the banner. The proofs were folded carelessly. He saw the heading One Small Voice inside the page. He looked at Rourke's hand. He thought he would like to have a bronze paperweight made of it, and how beautiful it would look on his desk. Now you know what I want. Go ahead, start at once. Drop anything else you're doing. I'll pay whatever you wish. I want that house by summer. Oh, forgive me. Too much association with bad architects. I haven't asked whether you want to do it. Rourke's hand moved first. He took it off the desk. Yes, said Rourke. I'll do it. Wynand saw the prints of the fingers left on the glass, distinct, as if the skin had cut grooves in the surface and the grooves were wet. How long will it take you? Wynand asked. You'll have it by July. Of course you must see the site. I want to show it to you myself. Shall I drive you down there tomorrow morning? If you wish. Be here at nine. Yes. Do you want me to draw up a contract? I have no idea how you prefer to work. As a rule, before I deal with a man in any matter, I make it a point to know everything about him from the day of his birth or earlier. I've never checked up on you. I simply forgot. It didn't seem necessary. I can answer any question you wish. Wynand smiled and shook his head. No. There's nothing I need to ask you. Except about the business arrangements. I never make any conditions, except one. If you accept the preliminary drawings of the house, it is to be built as I designed it, without any alterations of any kind. Certainly, that's understood. I've heard you don't work otherwise. But will you mind if I don't give you any publicity on this house? I know it would help you professionally, but I want this building kept out of the newspapers. I won't mind that. Will you promise not to release pictures of it for publication? I promise. Thank you. I'll make up for it. You may consider the wine and papers as your personal press service. I'll give you all the plugging you want on any other works of yours. I don't want any plugging. Wynand laughed aloud. What a thing to say, and what a place! I don't think you have any idea how your fellow architects would have conducted this interview. I don't believe you were actually conscious at any time that you were speaking to Gail Wynand. I was, said Rourke. This was my way of thanking you. I don't always like being Gail Wynand. I know that. I'm going to change my mind and ask you a personal question. You said you'd answer anything. I will. Have you always liked being Howard Rourke? Rourke smiled. The smile was amused, astonished, involuntarily contemptuous. You've answered, said Wynand. Then he rose and said, Nine o'clock tomorrow morning, extending his hand. When Rourke had gone, Wynand sat behind his desk, smiling. He moved his hand toward one of the plastic buttons and stopped. He realized that he had to assume a different manner, his usual manner, that he could not speak as he had spoken in the last half hour, 
Then he understood what had been strange about the interview. For the first time in his life he had spoken to a man without feeling the reluctance, the sense of pressure, the need of disguise he had always experienced when he spoke to people. There had been no strain and no need of strain. As if he had spoken to himself. He pressed the button and said to his secretary, Tell the morgue to send me everything they have on Howard Rourke. Guess what, said Alvis Garrett, his voice begging to be begged for information. Ellsworth Toohey waved a hand impatiently in a brushing-off motion, not raising his eyes from his desk. Go away, Alva, I'm busy. No, but this is interesting, Ellsworth. Really, it's interesting. I know you'll want to know. Toohey lifted his head and looked at him the faint contraction of boredom in the corners of his eyes, letting Scarrett understand that this moment of attention was a favor. He drawled in a tone of emphasized patience, All right. What is it? Scarrett saw nothing to resent in Tui's manner. Tui had treated him like that for the last year or longer. Scarrett had not noticed the transition in their relationship. By the time he noticed the change, it was too late to resent it. It had become normal to them both. Scarrett smiled like a bright pupil who expects the teacher to praise him for discovering an error in the teacher's own textbook. Ellsworth, your private FBI is slipping. What are you talking about? Bet you don't know what Gale's been doing, and you always make such a point of keeping yourself informed. What don't I know? Guess who is in his office today? My dear Alva, I have no time for quiz games. You wouldn't guess in a thousand years. Very well, since the only way to get rid of you is to play the vaudeville stooge, I shall ask the proper question. Who was in dear Gale's office today? Howard Rourke. Toohey turned to him full face, forgetting to dole out his attention, and said incredulously, No. Yes, said Scarrett, proud of the effect. Well, said Toohey, and burst out laughing. Scarrett half-smiled, tentatively, puzzled, anxious to join in, but not quite certain of the cause for amusement. Yes, it's funny, but just exactly why, Ellsworth? Oh, Alva, it would take so long to tell you. I had an idea it might... Haven't you any sense of the spectacular, Alva? Don't you like fireworks? If you want to know what to expect... Just think that the worst wars are religious wars between sects of the same religion, or civil wars between brothers of the same race. I don't quite follow you. Oh, dear, I have so many followers, I brush them out of my hair. Well, I'm glad you're so cheerful about it. But I thought it's bad. Of course it's bad. But not for us. But look, you know how we've gone out on a limb, you particularly, on how this Rourke is just about the worst architect in town. And if now our own boss hires him, isn't it going to be embarrassing? Oh, that? Oh, maybe. Well, I'm glad you take it that way. What was he doing in Winan's office? Is it a commission? That's what I don't know. Can't find out. Nobody knows. Have you heard of Mr. Winan planning to build anything lately? No. Have you? No. I guess my FBI is slipping. Oh, well, one does the best one can. But you know, Ellsworth, I had an idea. I had an idea where this might be very helpful to us indeed. What idea? Ellsworth, Gale's been impossible lately. Scarrett uttered it solemnly, 
with the air of imparting a discovery. Tui sat, half-smiling. Well, of course you predicted it, Ellsworth. You were right. You're always right. I'll be damned if I can figure out just what's happening to him, whether it's Dominique or some sort of a change of life or what. But something's happening. Why does he get fit suddenly and start reading every damn line of every damn edition and raise hell for the silliest reasons? He's killed three of my best editorials lately, and he's never done that to me before. Never. You know what he said to me? He said, Motherhood is wonderful, Alva, but for God's sake, go easy on the bilge. There's a limit even for intellectual depravity. What depravity? That was the sweetest Mother's Day editorial I ever put together. Honest, I was touched myself. Since when has he learned to talk about depravity? The other day he called Jules Fogler a bargain basement mind right to his face and threw his Sunday piece into the wastebasket. A swell piece, too, on the workers' theater. Jules Fogler, our best writer. No wonder Gail hasn't got a friend left in the place. If they hated his guts before, you ought to hear them now. I've heard them. He's losing his grip, Ellsworth. I don't know what I'd do if it weren't for you and the swell bunch of people you picked. They're practically our whole actual working staff, those youngsters of yours. Not our old sacred cows who are writing themselves out anyway. Those bright kids will keep the banner going. But Gail... Listen, last week he fired Dwight Carson. Now, you know, I think that was significant. Of course, Dwight was just a dead weight and a damn nuisance. But he was the first one of those special pets of Gail's. The boys who sold their souls. So in a way, you see, I liked having Dwight around. It was all right. It was healthy. It was a relic of Gail's best days. I always said it was Gail's safety valve. And when he suddenly let Carson go, I didn't like it, Ellsworth. I didn't like it at all. What is this, Alva? Are you telling me things I don't know? Or is this just in the nature of letting off steam, do forgive the mixed metaphor, on my shoulder? I guess so. I don't like to knock Gale, but I've been so damn mad for so long I'm fit to be tied. But here's what I'm driving at. This Howard Rourke, what does he make you think of? I could write a volume on that, Alva. This is hardly the time to launch into such an undertaking. No, but I mean, what's the one thing we know about him? That he's a crank and a freak and a fool. All right, but what else? That he's one of those fools you can't budge with love or money or a sixteen-inch gun. He's worse than Dwight Carson, worse than the whole lot of Gale's pets put together. Well, get my point? What's Gale going to do when he comes up against that kind of a man? One of several possible things. One thing only if I know Gale. And I know Gale. That's why I feel kind of hopeful. This is what he's needed for a long time. A swig of his old medicine. The safety valve. He'll go out to break that guy's spine. And it will be good for Gale. The best thing in the world. Bring him back to normal. That was my idea, Ellsworth. He waited, saw no complimentary enthusiasm on Tui's face, and finished, lamely. Well, I might be wrong. I don't know. It might mean nothing at all. I just thought that was psychology. That's what it was, Alva. Then you think it'll work that way? It might. Or it might be much worse than anything you imagine. But it's of no importance to us anymore. Because, you see, Alva, as far as the banner is concerned, if it came down to a showdown between us and our boss, we don't have to be afraid of Mr. Gale Winant any longer.
When the boy from the morgue entered, carrying a thick envelope of clippings, Wynant looked up from his desk and said, That much? I didn't know he was so famous. Well, it's the Stoddard trial, Mr. Wynant. The boy stopped. There was nothing wrong, only the ridges on Wynant's forehead, and he did not know Wynant well enough to know what these meant. He wondered what made him feel as if he should be afraid. After a moment, Wynant said, All right. Thank you. The boy deposited the envelope on the glass surface of the desk and walked out. Wynand sat looking at the bulging shape of yellow paper. He saw it reflected in the glass as if the bulk had eaten through the surface and grown roots to his desk. He looked at the walls of his office, and he wondered whether they contained a power which could save him from opening that envelope. Then he pulled himself erect. He put both forearms in a straight line along the edge of the desk, his fingers stretched and meeting. He looked down past his nostrils at the surface of the desk. He sat for a moment, grave, proud, collected, like the angular mummy of a pharaoh. Then he moved one hand, pulled the envelope forward, opened it, and began to read. Sacrilege by Ellsworth M. Tuey The Churches of Our Childhood by Alva Scarrett Editorials Sermons, speeches, statements, letters to the editor. The banner unleashed full blast, photographs, cartoons, interviews, resolutions of protest. Letters to the editor. He read every word, methodically, his hands on the edge of the desk, fingers meeting, not lifting the clippings, not touching them, reading them as they lay on top of the pile, moving a hand only to turn a clipping over and read the one beneath, moving the hand with a mechanical perfection of timing the fingers rising as his eyes took the last word, not allowing the clipping to remain in sight a second longer than necessary. But he stopped for a long time to look at the photographs of the Stoddard Temple. He stopped longer to look at one of Rourke's pictures, the picture of exultation, captioned, Are you happy, Mr. Superman? He tore it from the story it illustrated and slipped it into his desk drawer. Then he continued reading, the trial, the testimony of Ellsworth M. Tuey, of Peter Keating, of Ralston Holcomb, of Gordon L. Prescott. No quotations from the testimony of Dominique Francon, only a brief report. The defense rests. A few mentions in one small voice. Then a gap. The next clipping dated three years later, Monadnock Valley. It was late when he finished reading. His secretaries had left. He felt the sense of empty rooms and halls around him. But he heard the sound of the presses, a low rumbling vibration that went through every room. He had always liked that, the sound of the building's heart beating. He listened. They were running off tomorrow's banner. He sat without moving for a long time. Chapter 3 Rourke and Wynand stood on the top of a hill, looking over a spread of land that sloped away in a long, gradual curve. Bare trees rose on the hilltop and descended to the shore of a lake, their branches, geometrical compositions cut through the air. The color of the sky, a clear, fragile blue-green, made the air colder. The cold washed the colors of the earth, revealing that they were not colors, but only the elements from which color was to come. The dead brown, not a full brown, but a future green, 
the tired purple, an overture to flame, the gray, a prelude to gold. The earth was like the outline of a great story, like the steel frame of a building, to be filled and finished, holding all the splendor of the future in naked simplification. Where do you think the house should stand? asked Wynand. Here, said Rourke. I hoped you'd choose this. Wynand had driven his car from the city, and they had walked for two hours down the paths of his new estate. 